When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. On the second day of Real Vision Crypto Holidays, we present to you this deep dive interview with Balaji. Clocking in at nearly three hours long, this is the definitive interview to understand the nexus of crypto and the future of nation states. It's definitely one you want to watch to get ready for 2023 and beyond. Indeed, this interview is foundational to understanding the importance of blockchain technology and just how it will reshape our culture and futures in ways we're still just now coming to understand. Enjoy and happy holidays from all of us here at Real Vision. The world of crypto is an incredibly exciting journey that we're all going on together. We don't know where it's leading to, but we know it's going to be absolutely massive. Join me, Ral Pal, as I guide you on our adventure to discover just what this new world will look like. Balaji, fantastic to get you back on Real Vision. The first time you and I have actually got together properly. I think that's right. I'm glad to be here. I spoke to uh, some of your friends before, I think a year or two ago. Ash, I think. Yes, that's right. And uh, obviously being an eventful couple of years, lots of ups, lots of downs, but uh, talk about it all. Yep. Yeah, look forward to this. Um, but before we start, because there's a lot to dig into, um, I just want to get your story, how you got to where you are today, and that kind of journey into crypto technology, the whole thing. So love to hear that because it frames frames it for people, I think, nicely. Totally. Yeah. So, uh, you know, very briefly, um, you know, I really started out as like a pure academic, you know, I spent the first 25, 28 years of my life just doing stats, computer science, electrical engineering, chemical engineering, but all in an academic kind of context, uh, you know, especially in terms of like genetic circuits, which pull them all together, like applied genomics. Um, then I, you know, started a biotech company that got me into technology. Uh, I, um, you know, that sold later. Uh, and I was, uh, you know, became an angel investor, started investing in Bitcoin, other cryptocurrencies in the early 2010s, uh, joined Anderson Horowitz, a general partner, um, helped set up the bio and crypto funds there, uh, you know, took over one of our portfolio companies, turned it around, sold it to Coinbase, became CTO of Coinbase. And then after finishing up there for the last few years, I've been tweeting and writing. I just uh, published my first book titled The Network State. Um, it's a Wall Street Journal bestseller, despite it's free online at thenetworkstate.com. So you know people liked it if it's a bestseller despite being you know free online. So yeah, so now um, thenetworkstate.com, that's a free book online. I'm writing V2 of that, um, treating it not just like a book, but more like a book app, you know? And so that's kind of my journey is math guy, tech person, um, you know, investor, I've been like founder and executive, both engineer and hiring manager. I've been both, you know, I don't know, tweeter and writer. And I've been on many different sides of the table. And that's my thing. Um, there's a lot of other stuff I can go to, but that brings us hopefully to the present day. Talk to me about your crypto journey, because that's going to be very, very relevant to the network state. Um, talk to me how, what you first saw and how your thought processes evolved since you first saw it. You know, early in the 2010s, like a lot of other people, um, 
you know, after the financial crisis, I was, you know, th th these things that we had taken for granted, um, these constants had become variables, you know, like, oh, the banks, well, are they actually going to be here tomorrow? Oh, FDIC is actually like a real thing. Everybody learned exactly how much money is actually, you know, it's 250K and beyond that, it's not insured and so on and so forth. Like all those things that you just kind of just assume would continue to work, didn't. And so you started thinking about like root level, you know, abstractions in in the uh, in the system. And um, you know, one of those uh, things, you know, that arose over the next few years was Bitcoin. And um, you know, for me, you know, I was, I was occupied at the time with genomics, and I was looking at it in my peripheral vision. Um, but the space was attractive to me eventually for two reasons. The first is that Bitcoin crashed in 2011, but then it came all the way back up. And that's extremely unusual for something to crash 90% and then come all the way back. Amazon did that, right? But very few things show that kind of like staying power and that kind of community and so on. And so that's why I was like, okay, you know, this is not just some flash in the pan. It has, you know, some recovery, some strength, some potential. So I gave it a stronger second look. I did think it was really technologically interesting, but I gave it a much stronger look. I started getting heavily into cryptocurrency at the end of 2012. And I wrote up uh, some lecture notes and I taught a Stanford class starting in early 2013, which I think was, that was when like Bitcoin was like sub $10, right? Or like right around $10, okay? And, uh, you know, there's folks who got into it even earlier than I did, but I think it was rel relatively early. And, uh, you know, in that course, I taught people how to set up like a Bitcoin crowdfunder and, and so on and so forth. And um, so that was when, you know, Bitcoin, I think was, uh, it had gone all the way up to 220, April 2013, come back down to like 60 bucks or something like that. You know, the price graph is sort of, even if uh, I'm not, I'm definitely not a price guy. Like it's not something I track on a daily basis. I'm not a trader or anything like that. But it is something where like certain eras can be described in that way. You know, it's because it's like there's a difference at $10, 100, 1,000, 10,000, and we haven't yet gotten there, but 100,000. Each of those is a is an order of magnitude for the whole space, right? And for the improbability of this thing getting to where it's gotten. So one aspect was that aspect of, uh, or one thing that attracted me was that aspect of the constants of the financial system and the, just the global system becoming variables. And um, this is true, by the way, across many different, uh, you know, disciplines many you know it's it's not just in in uh finance you know for example a meeting is it an in person meeting or is it an online meeting right the introduction of digital everything a document oh is it a printed document digital so digital anything just now branches everything right and then you know if you think about the impact of deconstruction many things that were constants are now variables we don't have to get into that but all the cultural stuff right and uh, so that's like one part. And the second part was having experienced firsthand what the regulatory state actually was and is, right? Um, what the FDA is holding back, right? Like how corrupt an organization in many ways it is, which many people can now see thanks to COVID, right? Like you can, people can see, because everybody basically was paying attention to the same disease at the same time. It's not like, Alzheimer's or something where some small community is getting punched in the corner and you're not able to see it happening, right? Much of the federal government is optimized for optics. And it's like a, like imagine a chameleon or something that, you know, it, it looks a certain way and it is optimized to look a certain way. It's like the Potemkin villages of, you know, the Soviet Union, right? Right. They, they're cardboard. And if you zoom in, you push and it full, falls over, but most people don't push there. They can't because they're doing too many other things. They're just looking from a distance. They're in the Truman show and, and they don't actually push on any of the doors in the facade, right? So 
much, much of the federal government, much of the regulatory state is optimized for optics. And in the same way that, you know, with the TSA, we, which people do have some personal experience with, you go through the the line at an airport. I mean, when's the last time you've been to the airport at the TSA? And I'll get to my point on Bitcoin in a second. Okay. I don't know, a week ago. A week ago. Okay. So you go to the airport and, you know, we're used to the rigmarole of take off your shoes and the two ounce bottle. Oh, you can't have like a 10 ounce bottle. There's this terrorist technology called mixing where you could take two ounce bottles and mix them, you know, incredible advanced technology, right? So these like ludicrous things, yet nobody, despite how silly the whole thing is, nobody makes jokes in the line. Why don't you make jokes? Because you're going through this tunnel and the economic cost of not making your flight and the inconvenience of it is high enough that there's just no point in any protest, right? And it's it's just, it's like a tax, by the way. It's a tax on literally billions and billions and billions. I don't know how many flights have happened over that time frame since the early 2000s, but it's definitely in the many millions, probably billions, right? Uh, at least in terms of if you count each individual passenger as one flight in that sense, right? Probably not individual flights themselves. And, you know, you, you add all of that up and it's it's like this enormous cost but nobody can change that system. It's just like entrenched, okay? But they know it's stupid. Now you compare that to, let's say, going and dealing with the FDA. Now you enter this tunnel and uh, you're not underneath like TSA jurisdiction. You're underneath them for only like a few hours, you know, the plane flight and then you're out. FDA jurisdiction, you're under them for like 10 years. And you can't make jokes. You can't complain about them during this time frame. Many entrepreneurs don't even realize what they're in for until they, you know, are, are 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 faced with it, and especially until the mid 2010s, until like the rise of social media, entrepreneurs couldn't talk about it because if you did, you know what happened? FDA would retaliate. Okay, and that is actually like literally they have on their website like non retaliation policy. Again, the whole thing is optimized for optics. Would you would you have to have a non retaliation policy if you weren't retaliating? Right? There's various like FDA consultants around like the early 2010s that would. Um, tell you not to speak up on like phone calls, you know, with the FDA or whatever, because, uh, you know, they take names or whatever. They're looking for those who are supporting and so on. And just to kind of support this, just, you know, if you want a book length treatment of this, um, you should read Reputation and Power by Daniel Carpenter. Okay. And if you just skim like the first few chapters, this guy is an FDA sympathizer, but he's honest enough to include direct quotes from the executives and in regulated industry. And essentially what happened was all the vim and vigor, all the people who had that heroic attitude of the entrepreneur, all the guys who are in it for the wonder drugs, all of them had the life beaten out of them over the mid 20th century by the FDA. And if you didn't have the FDA as your first customer, and by the way, they, they omit the, the the, they call it just FDA. That's like the insider way of talking. So if you did not obey FDA, you basically lost your job as an executive because FDA could basically just, you know, flick a wrist like this and just delay or stop all of your drugs. And because everybody trusted their judgment, you're just dead. You're reputationally dead. So this is why, for example, and I'll get to the Bitcoin part in a second, you know, when you get a vial of drugs, okay, like from, um, you know, the pharmacy, what's in there? It's like a wadded up chemistry textbook. The user interface on that is horrible, okay? I can understand that. Like, I, I know what, you know, benzene rings or whatever are, okay? But like, you know, you have to sit down with a magnifying glass and it's like three, five, fluoro, this and that, you know, the average person has no concept of what this is. Why is the user interface that bad? Most people haven't even thought about why it's that bad. It's that bad because the FDA makes it that bad. 
that is a right. It's like it's like the financial disclosure, you know, gibberish that has to be there on on you know websites, right? This is something where there's enough cruft that's accumulated that a lawyers will tell you do this and you're safe. And uh, you know, the alternative to that, by the way, is like there's this company called like Help I Need Help, and they just package the drugs differently. You know, they um, it's like okay, help, I have a headache and they've got this. Help, I have, you know, they they package it differently. Another version of this is like pill pack where they got people to actually take drugs more consistently by changing the UX where they, you print out like labels and then you you just actually have the drugs like individual serving size in each one rather than having them all in one um, pharmaceutical box so you can remember whether you took it or not, right? So like UX is actually just like, one area you could innovate on. People don't even think you can innovate on this stuff, right? You can innovate on formulation, all this sort of stuff. Point is, the era of, do you know, do you know who Banting and Best were? No. Okay, Banting and Best, the era of Banting and Best, they, you know, you Google them, they, you know, they won the Nobel Prize. How did they win the Nobel Prize? In the early 1900s, they came up with the idea that uh, insulin supplementation could help treat um, a form of diabetes. And they came up with the concept and they, you know, tested it on uh, like dogs and they tested it on themselves. And then they tested it on like a patient who like sprung up from the bed like Eureka and they iterated on the formulation the whole time. And it was just willing doctor, willing patient. And uh, it was like just a few years from when they came up with the concept when like Eli Lilly had scaled production for the entire North American continent. Okay. That was a time when pharma moved at the speed of software. Okay, when you went from concept to like scale in like a couple of years, the wonder drug era, right? Now, here's the thing. With that level of innovation also comes risk and downside. So what happened were there were things like elixir of sulfonilamide. There were things like, you know, many decades later, like thalidomide and so on, which had these huge outcries around them that led to people being risk intolerant and locking the whole process down, right? Later, what happened was that level of risk intolerance led to blocking drugs, for example, for HIV patients, okay, and led to ACT UP in the late 80s, where now the FDA, you know, people wore a t-shirt saying, if I die, you know, don't bury me, just drop my body in, on the steps of the FDA. Have you seen those t-shirts? No. Okay. Yeah. But it makes sense. It makes sense, right? right? Now today, you know, we saw with COVID that the, not just the FDA, but the CDC and the entire public health establishment was saying masks don't work before they do. And now they don't again. And it's the political health establishment. It's not the public health establishment. It's just like this way, this way, this way. And every time it was like science, capital S science is saying it, right? So why, why, do, why do I kind of digress and talk about the FDA? Because a lot of people, you know, Thoreau has this saying, which is, uh, you know, there's a thousand men striking at the branches of evil for every one striking the root. Okay. What's the most important innovation we can have? It's life extension. Okay. It's, it's, it's actually possible to do that. I can give all kinds of citations on this if you want. Photographs of guys who've, you know, peer-reviewed, published papers who have their, uh, you know, their, their hair color has come back. Right. There's with mice, there's anti-aging, there's yeah, with, whether it's MM supplementation, NAD plus, or whether it's with, you know, there's and in fact Harari's book, Homo Deus, goes through this at length that this is the probably the focusing mission of humanity now. Yeah, exactly. Right. So, you know, whether you call it transhumanism, I call it optimalism, some people call it superhumanism, okay, where you know you're basically like improving yourself, right? Uh, I'll show you one more link. Super Soul Sharm is real. What am I? What am I putting on screen? I'm showing a wild type mouse, like a normal mouse, and I'm showing like a myostatin null mouse, which is just built, right? Yeah. And that's literally like the Captain America panel in the bottom row, where 
like it's just like the super jacked version of a mammal, right? Now you might think, wow, that's amazing technology. That's to come out just last year. When are we going to get into the clinic? You know when that paper came out? 2007, literally 15 years ago. You've never heard of this, right? You didn't know this existed. Instead, you know, we're doing this stuff, which is like, I mean, look, I like 24-hour fitness. I like gyms and clubs and so on and so forth. But are we solving problems or are we moving the mashed potatoes around the plate, right? Universal healthcare is not enough. We need eternal life, okay? And the thing is, as crazy as it sounds, read David Sinclair, read the Huberman stuff, read, you know, like all the life extension longevity stuff, read Laura Deeming. There's a lot of work in this space. I say this as a biomedical guy, you know, like I know it's like crypto. It sounds crazy, but then you dig in and actually life extension is much like crypto in another way, which is it inverts fundamental premises. Crypto says user custody is good. Deflation is good. Central banking is bad and so on and so forth. Life extension says that the premise of the medical system that you should die and that some little death is good you know, and that eventual death is good and that, you know, the purpose of medicine is to repair you, not to make you better. It inverts those premises, right? Okay. Putting it all together, once you understand what the regulatory state is holding back, okay, once you understand that it's not just holding back Uber and Airbnb, which money is definitely not everything, but it's at least a quantitative measure. Uber and Airbnb, that's like $100 billion, more than that, if you include DD and Grab and, you know, Gojek and so on around the world, right? Hundreds of billions of dollars just for taxi and hotel regulations, okay? The SEC, CFTC, this entire alphabet soup of financial regulatory agencies, clearly we're still in the middle of the crypto buildup. It's been holding back trillions of dollars. What is the FDA holding back? It's it's tens of trillions. It's, it's like a hundred trillion dollars. It's like makes crypto look small, which is insane to think about, right? I mean, because you think about what is your yeah. reserve price? Would you pay your like somebody who's like 80 something would pay their entire accumulated net worth to be essentially 20 again in terms of life, right? And so it's the largest market on the planet. Yeah, for okay. sure. So now how do you actually get to that market? Well, the thing that people don't realize is uh, there's something called harmonization. This is the most important thing in technology to attack and figure out for 10 years, 15 years, this is all I've been thinking about is harmonization, okay? It's like a different way of thinking about it. I mean, it's just a different way of casting some of the stuff I've talked about. Do you know what harmonization is? No. Harmonization, it, you can Google like FDA harmonization, FAA harmonization, SEC harmonization. It is a process by which the American regulatory state regulates the world, okay? So right. as an analogy, right. take, a, take a small website, small website, they will outsource their login to facebook.com, okay? And um, why do they do that? Because, you know, they don't want to set up a whole login system and so on, right? But now they're beholden to Facebook and they can just shut them off remotely. And um, in the same way, a small country, you know, Czechoslovakia or something like that may outsource their regulation to FDA, SEC, you know, et cetera. Yeah, we do it here in the Cayman Islands. So all of our food is all US approved. All of our drugs are UK approved but we just outsource the whole thing because we don't have the manpower. It's a country of 60,000 people. We can't do it. And it makes sense for the companies as well, because if they're going to be regulated by somebody, they want to just get one check in the US and then be able to export to the whole world, right? So there is this combined corporate government fusion that is pushing homogenization of regulation across the whole world, okay? But as the Chinese proverb goes, you know, the empire uh, long united must divide, long divided must unite. Okay, so this empire is long united, must divide. Why? Because that harmonization is done by 
literally unelected bureaucrats that have career tenure in the federal government, sitting in Silver Spring, Maryland, or, or somewhere near in the bowels of the federal bureaucracy. You don't know their names, okay? But they control biomedical and aviation and energy and financial policy for billions of people across the entire world. I can't, have we run an election on, on these, you know, the, like the democratic accountability isn't there, right? Because they can't even be drummed out, by the way. They can't be, they're not up for election. They can't be fired by an elected official and they have career tenure, so they can't be fired and no reporter ever names them. Just to put a finger on that, like when you hear about Facebook, what do you hear about? Zuckerberg, right? I actually like, you know, I, I rather I admire some of the things Zuck has done. I disagree with other things. On balance though, like I admire the fact that he built something from nothing. It's actually very hard to do what he did. Um, and he did give free, you know, like a bunch of free services. He did like, I think, level up, you know, things, even if, if we want to do things that are less centralized, okay? But he takes personal responsibility for all that. He's constantly named in the press. They, they hit him as a person because the person has fewer hit points than the company, right? If you're proposing a reform of the institution, you, you you say Facebook. If you want to harm the person, people say Zuck. They put them on, you know, like uh, you know, covers and so on, right? But what you never hear about are the people who are operating the federal bureaucracy. It's only the institution that's ever named: FDA, FAA, SEC. That has infinite hit points. It's basically has infinite budget. It can't go bankrupt, right? And one way of thinking about it, by the way, is more failure, more funding. Okay, after the financial crisis. The regulators basically, you know, what happens, you, you get called into Congress, you, you get yelled at, and then you know what happens, you know what the denouement is, how much budget do you need to make sure this doesn't happen again? More failure, more funding. This is different to what, what happens with a biotech company, for example, just so, you know, the banks are a little different, but biotech- It kind of sounds like India, it's perpetualized bureaucracy. Well, right? okay, so- the Bureaucracy is a system in itself. Yeah, so it's interesting. So like India, we can talk about India in a bit. India is really interesting because- yeah. Um, one of the weirdest things, the, one of the most unexpected things over the last 40 years of my life is that India has become, been becoming more like America and, and America is becoming more like the India of my youth. It's like this insane, right? insane conversions. Okay. So we talk about that, put a pin in that for a second, but yes. Yeah. It's already on my okay, list. Great. So that like that crazy bureaucracy, um, doesn't even really capture because bureaucracy makes it seem like you can just push paper and somehow get through. Bureaucracy makes it seem like the DMV, right? This is not the DMV. The DMV is like just a dumb machine where if you push on it hard enough, you'll get your driver's license renewal or whatever, right? You'll just have to go and stand in line. This is not like that. This is more like a moving wall, you know, that will, if you figure out the right way to, to actually satisfy the rules, if it doesn't like the cut of your jib, it just moves in front of you, okay? It's like, you know, like a moving pick in basketball, right? So it's like, this guy will just like, you know, break the rules and move in front of you. So it's an analogy in that sense as well, because a moving pick's an illegal, illegal defensive move, right? Um, but they just don't like what you're doing. They'll come up with some reason to block you, right? And they'll often get you on some other axis as opposed to the one that they don't like you for, okay? They'll, it's in, in going back again to the TSA example, it's called a retaliatory wait time, okay? The TSA, the retaliatory wait time is you miss your flight. The FDA retaliatory wait time is you lose your company. Because guess what? You get choked out and your approval for your drug or whatever has gone from three months to 15 months. You don't have venture capital to fund during that time period. And suddenly your approval has just gotten uncertain. Uh, no one's going to re-up. You're dead, right? Or you're bought for a fire sale by a big pharma company who will you know, pick up the pieces and they, they can afford to negotiate with the FDA forever, right? So there's this incentive for incumbency, this incentive for bigness, this incentive for stasis and whatnot. Okay. Now, the, the, I think in the fullness of time, COVID 
will be to the FDA and the CDC. And also, by the way, it's not just, I mean, FDA is a big part of it, but it's also AMA and CPT and this entire, you know, insurance-based system where you have a third-party payer, a fourth-party pricer, and a fifth-party regulator, right? It's not just you and the doctor. Like, the doctor doesn't know how much they're charging you. Someone else is saying the prices. Someone else is paying a fourth-party and a fifth-party is regulating. It's like there's a bunch of people in the room with you, effectively, with that doctor-patient relationship that means, like, capitalism doesn't work, right? Um, because it's not capitalism. It's not willing- It's ahead. been very interesting to see Mark Cuban doing what he's doing. I've been writing about this for maybe 10 years. After the Indian generics industry rise, I saw that and I was like, well, this is going to solve a lot of problems for particularly the US where drug prices are too high and generics are going to be the answer. But obviously the FDA, everybody else was completely anti it because there's this whole systemic kind of pocket picking where everybody gets rich. But Mark's finally gone around it, which is great to see. Yes, and it might be one of the best things he does. And one of the biggest things that is actually enabling that, which is non-obvious, is actually Twitter. You know why? Because he has a megaphone. That's right. You, you've got zero marketing costs. It's what? like, I don't know if you saw that amazing thread on on Tesla about this. Yeah, about zero marketing. How budget. they don't have to pay a penny. For- yes. Yeah, it's it amazing. Is, it is. It is. You're, you're right that from the dollars and cents standpoint, it's it's like low marketing costs. But it's something even more than that, which is it is his own newspaper. That's ridiculously important because another aspect of this whole thing, why did you never, you know, the angle I just gave on the FDA, I, again, I can get, I gave these citations and so on, but it's a lens on the FDA that you probably hadn't heard before, or, or many people hadn't heard. Normally what you hear is instead, you know, they're they're basically like the the biotech police, right? They're They're protecting you from these evil pharma companies that want to, you know, like, like poison your food and drink and, you know, like just cut corners and sell you impure drugs and so on and so forth, right? And the government's going to protect you from that. Which is clearly nonsense, right? Because the incentive system is not to kill your customer because yeah. you don't have a customer well, so, in so the free market. So here's where it gets tricky, right? So the way I think about it is V1, V2, V3. It is true. And this is this is the, an important thing where I think there's a sophistication here. It's very important. Um it is true that, for example, in China, there's like the melamine scandal, right? Where, you know, there's like, you know, uh, contaminated milk, right? Uh, like baby formula. Uh, it is true that people actually do want, this is the subtlety, they do want a regulated marketplace in the sense of they want some actor that's providing star ratings of the various vendors in the marketplace, and they want that person to kick out bad actors. Why? Because your average person does not want to be able to you know, go and put a dipstick into every um, drink to see whether it has mercury or something in it, right? They don't want to be paying that quality cost all the time. They just want to effectively, implicitly pay one regulator and then have them take care of it, right? Now, the main thing that I propose as a V3 is choice in regulators, okay? To give some context on this, you can choose between Uber and Lyft for your taxi regulation. They have different rider ratings and different reviews and so on and so forth. And this is like the CFTC versus the SEC in crypto, right? It, right sort now. of, yes, in theory, though in practice- you We don't have the choice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The fight you, is going yeah, on. Ex- who's going to get the monopoly? Who's going to get the monopoly? That's right. But yes, maybe a better example would be, you know, um, if you're building a building and you really could building in any of the 50 states, you pick which regulator you're choosing, okay? And some states make it easy to build a building and some states make it harder. Right, you have to weigh other costs like market and so on and so forth. But once you start thinking about it, not as like abolish the FDA or end the Fed, but exit the Fed, exit the FDA, you actually set yourself the harder task of building something better. Now, 
don't, don't forget, I live in a country that is built on exactly this premise. So the Cayman Islands premise is tax neutrality. It's not like a, you know, you, in this day and age, you don't get to evade taxes, right? Because sure. everything gets reported, right. but it's tax neutrality. But the idea is you create a good enough regulatory system that has the English rule of law that ends up going to the English the Privy Council. Therefore, you've got legal redress. And therefore, what happens is companies around the world will look for where is the jurisdiction that gives them the right regulatory framework with the right protection, but not too much. Right. And it works phenomenally well. So you can choose to set up your business in Cayman, um, the US, Singapore, Europe, and you'll make that choice. That's right. And so, you know, once we think about it this way, right, you know, the actually some of the most profitable companies and countries out there are effectively vendors of regulatory services. Harmonization is starting to break up, right? So that huge 20th century arc of the US where it basically like ruled huge parts of the world um, is starting to actually break apart and countries are starting to break away. Like you can do some stem cell stuff in Germany and there's like some drone stuff in parts of the world. There's like self-driving cars in Singapore and financial innovation in places like Dubai or Singapore, right? Um, and Cayman. And so, so the US regulatory thing is starting to break up and I think in the fullness of time, as I mentioned, what the financial crisis was in terms of like sort of bootstrapping Satoshi and crypto, COVID will be that in terms of like bootstrapping the exit of the FDA and the CDC and, and you know, so on, right? Okay. Putting it all together, why is crypto an enabling technology for this, having thought about this stuff for a long time, is because it is, quote, the exit, okay? For example, at a stroke. Rather than going and trying to figure out, like, they modify subpart F of Schedule D on Law X, or, you know, people could spend like their entire lives just trying to get in one modification. And then what does it come down to? It's like some senator's mood on the morning, you know, whether they had coffee and they slip in a clause into a 1100 page omnibus bill. Like, that's how legislation is made in the United States. It's like, ah. Uh, you know, this could you imagine, like, you know, if you're an engineer pushing 1,100 pages of new code without testing it to the entire code base that affects 300? It's like, you know, at the last minute with 500 people adversarially coding it, it's like the stupidest possible thing. We will honestly look at this system like we looked at the middle age monks or whatever, you know, like, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, Christian flagellants. Just think of the craziest antiquated, you know, I, I, you know, it's like, the indulgent system of the Catholic Church, you know, crazy systems that don't make any sense for like future peoples. This is what that system is. Okay. What's the alternative then? What's the alternative to that? Well, can you get actually a new zone, right? Can you get a new space that's bare of law, right? That's just all the people who are there have now come to this new space and opted in to be bound by the rules of those who came before. Just like, for example, someone sets up a server. Okay, they have a piece of digital land, a domain, and the people who come there, hey, you know, the first guy there set up the service and he's the system administrator and then people come there, he might hire more folks and then it becomes reddit.com where whatever billion people are there, you know, or it becomes the Ethereum blockchain, right? One person sets it up. They, crucially, when they make those electrons dance, when they have that little, you know, spot of cyberspace, they are taking nothing from anybody. Nobody cared about it before then. It's provable that there's no value there right? They truly did create something from nothing because they just twiddled some electrons. They made a more pleasing configuration of electrons and other people were attracted to that glow and they all migrated there, right? And 
can we replicate that? Because that's a frontier spirit, fundamentally. It's like getting a piece of free land and being able to build on it. We have a digital frontier. Can we actually use that digital frontier to create a physical frontier? This is really the fundamental thing. And when people say, oh, you know, crypto is about illegal things, so on, one way of thinking about it is portraying it as, you know, when the Puritans left England or the UK to come to the US, they were looking for something where they could do things that were illegal in the United Kingdom, right? In the sense of they wanted a new community that was independent of this jealous government, right? And Yeah, I've always called it a, a parallel financial ecosystem. That's right. So it is parallel, but not constricted by the same issues that we have with the currency. That's right. And so the thing is that when we had territory in the world that wasn't completely claimed or that, you know, before the modern, you know, cased in iron concrete nation state system, you could get physical separation to get social separation, right? When they went overseas, practically speaking, it was harder to be ruled, right? And yep. now today, when every inch of earth is spoken for and satellites track everything and the slightest border thing is like a war or whatever, right? How could you possibly get a zone of freedom? So I actually have an answer to that. And that's what this book is about, The Network State. I want to, before we get into The Network State, there's another part of this thread that we need to bring together. So we understand where crypto fits into this. The other thread is the evolution of the internet itself and how it's allowed people to coalesce in communities, transnational borders, because those two ideas come together into The Network State. So Let's go through your understanding of the internet, the evolution, and what it enabled in a way that was different to the nation state. Because it's something, again, I've been talking about for a long time. I think it's really important. Absolutely. I'm going to sum up the previous thing and then go into this one, right? So just to give the very quick answer to your point, why crypto? A, constants were turned into variables. You know, the, the banks after the financial crisis, the dollar is now the dollar and Bitcoin. You know, there's a choice, just like meetings, or is it in-person or digital? B, um, harmonization is one of the most important problems to solve, maybe the most important problem to solve. And the way to get out of harmonization is not to edit laws on the margins, but to figure out how to get to an entirely new zone where everything starts at zero. And all new laws, just like a new code base, you're starting at zero. A new company, you're starting at zero. A new piece of land, you're starting at zero. Um, being able to start from scratch is like insanely important. And that's what crypto gave us. It's like a new piece of land, but in digital space, just like a new domain. And... Um, and, and then finally, like the concept of uh, globally unbanning transactions, which is related to number two, right? Basically, willing buyer, willing seller, right? You start from there. You know, you start from the concept that all is permissible and that you need to actually add every ban back. Do you see what I'm saying? It's like, you know, the sunset laws, right? Where, where like a bad law gets sunset. Sunset the whole thing. And in this new zone where only those people who care to enter it first do, because most people don't have to, right? Like nobody has to, they can just go and live their life in non-crypto world. Just like most people, people did not have to immigrate to America. If they wanted to go to the wild west, they could, but most people chose not to do that. You can go to the wild, you know, cloud of crypto, but most people do not have to do that. But those people who do do that, they take the risk, they reap the reward, the earlier the adopter, the higher the risk, the higher the reward. And People learn from their examples. Also within the community, they learn from each other's examples. I've, I've even, interesting enough, I've even talked about crypto as the dis and Web3, this whole thing, the whole space as the discovery of the exactly. Americas. It is, I think it's new GDP as well. It's not recycling of GDP. It's entirely new GDP. For example, world GDP changed significantly as America became part of the globe. 
That's right. And actually, so now that gets to the second thing, which is, I think we can actually make that analogy even even more than an analogy, like a mathematical analogy. Okay. And let me, um, I'll just throw some stuff. So you, you talked about the internet, right? One thing I talk about in the book, and I'm going to actually significantly expand this chapter with some visuals and code and what have you. 1890, the American frontier closed. Uh, 1991, it reopened because the NSF Foundation, National Science Foundation, rather, uh, repealed the so-called acceptable use policy. Do you know what that was? So that actually banned commercial traffic on the internet. Why? Hmm. You're like, that seems weird. I mean, like we think of the internet as synonymous with .com, right? What, what the heck, right? So what the AUP was, was something because the internet started as like a military and academic and government network, right? And it was originally set up to like have communication systems that would survive a nuclear attack. That's foreshadowing. That's Chekhov's gun. Let's come back to that in a later question. Okay. So the internet was set up to survive a nuclear attack. Okay. So it was this military academic thing and they didn't want commercial traffic because they said, look, that's going to get us spam and it's going to get us porn and malware and all this like stuff. And you know what? They were completely right. All that stuff did happen. Okay. But we got enough benefit to, uh, to, to offset that cost and more than that. I think, I think that's fair to say. Right. That's like literally all the economic growth of the last whatever, you know, 20 years is thanks to the internet. So, so that's like the reopening of the frontier because you could register a domain name. That's really what it boiled down to. You could register the free land existed. You could build from scratch and think about how ridiculously important this is. So it wasn't a government controlled land. It became a publicly available land. I mean, exactly. Cause the thing is that, um, on a piece of land, I mean, you can build a billion dollar business online, but you need a billion permits to build a shed in San Francisco. Okay. That's the difference is, you know, it's really, it's literally easier to build. And I've, 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 I've like done this myself. It is literally about as much effort to like get a company to like a $50 million valuation as it is to like get like, I don't know, a duplex built in San Francisco. Okay. It's like the same amount of just, energy that you have to spend. So that's just dead weight yeah. loss, obviously, right? And so what happens is, and this is a problem with the, you know, one of the things that's happened over the last 20 some years, the entire US government was set up under the premise that the best and the brightest would go in, I know that's like a Halberstam thing, but let's take it actually seriously, that the most talented would go into the US government. And that was something that was true from roughly FDR's brain trust to, let's say, Apollo, right? There was a, there was a golden age of the US government, which, by the way, was atypical. Most of the time, you didn't have this massive centralized government in this way. If you go backwards and forwards in time, it was more decentralized. There were great areas of America that did, right? Okay. What's my point? Point is, once you had this Leviathan that was set up, assuming a lot of talented people, and then you had this door to the frontier that opened, right, of the internet, a lot of talented people just started going there instead. First, a trickle, and then a flood, right? And now what's happened is anybody who has any quantitative skill, okay, any technical skill, who's capable of doing basic arithmetic and math and logic and is positive sum, a very large proportion of those people have not chosen to go into the civil service. Why? Because they'd spend, again, you know, 10 years, 20 years of their life editing subpart F or whatever, right? And that's just a waste of their life, literally a waste of their life. 
Instead, they could go and, you know, be like, you know, just have total control over a piece of land that's called their own. How could you be against that, right? That's creative freedom. Same thing has happened to Hollywood. Same thing is, you know, with, with people going and becoming influencers rather than like Hollywood stars and, you know, trying to get extorted by studios. Same thing is happening to media. People are doing substacks instead, right? So the old world is just, uh, same thing is happening, by the way, in academia, professors going and starting companies as opposed to, you know, being a professor. So the old world of academia and media and Hollywood and government, like, you know, it's just having, it's just losing all of these brains. Problem is, this is not a comparative advantage scenario because those who remain in the government have power over those outside. Right, the rules. Yeah, exactly. It's not like, you know, okay, I'm going to, I decide to go make oranges and this guy's making apples and we trade. I'm making oranges and this guy is collecting guns to point at me to take the oranges. Okay. So something that was an individually rational thing to do. And by the way, you could also imagine a, just a thought experiment. If you had like the thousand top tech CEOs, all part of the federal government, it would work way better. Why? Because hmm. A could put it, you know, if there's some stupid regulation or whatever, he could put in a call to B and it'd be like the 1950s where it's like, oh yeah, that's a stupid law. Forget about it. Just go and do this. You know, they just executive order it or they just work around it. They have some interagency agreement. That's how like the government used to work where there were these guys who were just practical enough to know that this was what was written and this is what the thing actually was. It was in the startup phase of the US government in a sense, right? The whole thing that FDR set up, it had to be nimble enough to win these wars and fight the you know, Soviets and, and what have you, right? Then it became ossified and all the best left. And now it's just like this machine that was built for another age, yeah? Um, so there is this, uh, this thing where I don't fault any of the folks who left. Um, it, it's, it's kind of a funhouse mirror way, by the way, of thinking of like folks saying, oh my God, these guys are selfish. It's not selfish. It is, it's basically something where you're asking someone to like literally sacrifice their, their one life, you know, on pushing around paper in a way where there's a, there's actually like the curve is against it, right? Um, because the government isn't getting any better. And, but the, the net consequence of this is that you have something where all this energy has now gone to the frontier. And this is now happening, not just in the US, it's happening obviously in all these other places around the world. Now India has got like a billion people online. You have folks in Nigeria, folks in South America, folks in the Middle East, folks in Europe, and so on. All of them are connecting to this skyhook and getting pulled up by the internet into this new cloud continent that has descended, right? It's literally like, you know, Atlantis, right? Except in the cloud. And a lot of people are essentially telecommuting from their spots on earth to the cloud. Just to make this a little bit more than just a picturesque metaphor, okay? Here's a question for you and also for your audience, okay? Just think for a second. What percentage of your waking hours do you spend looking at a screen? Of my waking hours, probably 70%. There you go. So most of your life and most of the rest of your life is being spent in the matrix, is in the cloud. Yeah. That's a, there's enormous consequences to all of that, right? First, what that means is, um, of course, physics and math is very important. That describes a physical world. In the digital world, it's computer science and statistics because it's algorithms and it's databases. It's a constructed environment, right? So that's different than, you know, if you're just sitting at like a desk and typing things, or even you've got a VR headset, the laws of digital worlds are what the programmers have made them, right? And so you can have very interesting, constructed, interesting to human environments in there that just have whiz-bang physics as opposed to the offline world. Right? So first of all, our intuitions of the physics literally change, okay? Number two is the geography 
of physical space and digital space are fundamentally different. And uh, this is actually like, you know, I could literally write a whole book on just this because actually you take a you take a simple concept, you can take it very far, okay? For example, in physical space, the most important metric is a great circle distance, like the distance between two points on the surface of the globe. And you can modify this and you can say, okay, it's not just two points on the surface of the globe. It's like the actual travel time from one to the next. For example, between South Africa and Argentina, it's actually not that long a flight, but for humans to make that migration, you know, it would have been like this insane overland journey, you know, all the way up through Anchorage, all the way down. Like humans did make that journey, but that's like maybe the longest journey on earth by foot. Okay. So you can, you basically that the point is a physical distance. So even if it's constrained um, in some way by like actual capability of traveling is very important. Okay. In the physical world, in the digital world, the most important distance is the distance between two points in a network right? The, like the six degrees of separation type distance. Okay. And moreover, um, you can like teleport around in the digital world. You can break ties here and then like reform them there. Okay. Just as an example, Ethereum is, let's say it's hundred million people or something like, let's say it's 50 million people. There's about 300 million global crypto users. Okay. Let's say it's 50 million. I don't know the exact number. Okay. It's, it's just kind of sitting over here. And then one day Solana rises up out of the ocean. And it's next door to Ethereum and the Sol ETH trade begins and Sol ETH rises and it's taking nodes away from this cloud continent of Ethereum or what have you, right? This is completely different to how our intuitions work in the offline world where, you know, there's sort of eternal verities of geopolitics. Like here's Russia and it's near Japan and it's near, you know, Iran and it's it doesn't like move around the map. Right. Like Russia is not like next to Argentina one day and then like next to Australia another day. Right. Go ahead. Although they try by politics, yeah, right? yeah, sure, I and mean, that's the it's, it's true. In, in the, geopolitics is exactly the the shifting alignment between the network states yeah. and nation well, states. Well, yes, yeah. so, so it is true that yes, nation states obviously they can expand, and you know the Soviet Empire Zenith had guys in Angola and it had guys in Cuba and was trying stuff, and so it, it's true, yes. But there's that's kind of like there, there's a core, you know, of Moscow and, and Kiev, and where, there's a core of where that thing was. And that core, uh, you know, unless that that you know uh, that ethnic group just loses their territory, and you know, it's like the, I don't know, the the guys in the Bible, their ethnic groups have just got totally wiped out. Unless they, um, unless they completely lose their territory and get wiped out, they basically have a home base, and their neighbors are pretty much constant over the centuries, right? And even as they shift ideologies, like you know, um, the Russians under the Tsar, Japan was their enemy because of the Russo-Japanese War. And even when Russia went to communism, Japan was still their enemy because now Japan was ultranationalist. And so, you know, this is something where even if the ideologies had changed, the geopolitics remained the same. And so, like, they just had that enmity there, right? The Russo-Japanese relationship. What's the point? Point is, the offline world's boundaries and, and border conflicts are much more static, whereas the online world is like, Voo, people teleport here. Then, you know, they're all fighting. Voo, they teleport somewhere else, right? And you can have mass blocks and you can have like a totally new thing coming out of nowhere. The digital geography is different. And when I say geography, by the way, you know, in math, there's this concept of like a distance metric and you can literally do cloud cartography. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you can map the entire thing out and you can see the shifting borders and everything. That's exactly right. Yep. And so, you know, one way of thinking about it, you can almost imagine the 2D surface of the earth as being like a network where the distances between two nodes, it's like, you know, between two 
uh, intersections of a, of a city or between two cities, right? And then you take that and now you've got something like that in digital space, but it's just much more complicated. Okay. So once you start thinking about things in terms of digital space, right, you realize that uh, things like Facebook, things like the internet itself, what they basically did is it's like, here's, here's the earth, okay? And it's like, we created a parallel earth of nodes, okay? And, um, you know, Jack Butcher did a great visual of this. What the internet yep. did is it like cloned the earth, right? We have physical space and we have digital space. And the distance between two people in physical space can be wildly different from their distance in digital space. Like you and I are now adjacent to each other in, in digital space, but we're whatever thousand miles apart in physical space. Conversely, there's like, you know, folks who are, I don't know, a mile away from me in physical space that I will never meet in digital space. They're many, they're much farther away, right? And I'm sure the same is true for you, right? So our social networks and our physical neighbors are just very different right now. Yeah, we might live physically. I might like physically in Cayman. The people I interact with all day are all around the world, whether it's on Twitter, in which case I don't even know where, or whether it's on Zoom and it's people in the US, people in Singapore, we're not constricted by physical boundaries, except in the physical jurisdiction we live in because we choose to live here for the reasons that we choose to live. But we choose to live in digital network states. Well, let's call them communities first before we get into the network state because it's a broader con. We live in digital communities that are not physically, have no physical proximity, but have mental proximity, let's say, or ideological proximity. Yes, that's right. And And the thing about that is, that is a intermediate phase that will eventually resolve like a rubber band snapping, right? Because you have, you know, you know what the least popular word in the world is, but maybe the most important word in the world, like it by 2030, 2035. Okay. Recentralization. Yeah. Okay. Why? Centralization, decentralization, recentralization. Why recentralization? Because you unbundle and then you bundle. Example, you have the uh, the CD with the songs and you unbundle it into MP3s um, and then you rebundle it into a playlist. Okay, you have the newspaper and you unbundle it into individual web pages and you rebundle it into a Twitter feed. Okay, well even nation states do this as well. They 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 bundle, unbundle, rebundle. Yeah, bundle, unbundle, rebundle. Right, I mean, and don't forget World War Two was essentially the unbundling. Well, it was the rebundling again once you set up the rules rules-based global order system that followed it, which was a rebundling. Yes. And now we're looking at multipolarization again. So this is the unbundling. I mean, another example, like, you know, you 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 have the individual authors, they get all you, you have authors in a at a at a um magazine, they get unbundled into individual substacks and blogs. And now they're rebundling into like group substacks and like group blogs, right? And so this is the empire long centralized must, you know, or long united must divide, long divided must unite, right? That's just this constant cycle. Now, the thing about that is it doesn't mean we end up in the same place, okay? So there's an aspect of both cyclicity and progress. This is what I call the helical theory of history in the book, okay? So there is progress in the sense of, you know, playlists of songs are actually better than CDs, even if they, they've got a similarity to them because they're more dynamic. And, and the heliocentric is what you're talking about is an improvement that goes like this. Yes. I've read the book as well. And, and it's the improvement that increases, but most of the time you don't realize it's increasing because you think you're going around in circles, but in fact, you're improving. That's right. And moreover, the thing about that is it, it's not guaranteed to increase, but we have a shot at increasing, right? So 
This is meant to sort of push back on the concept that recentralization just means new boss, same as the old boss. So it's not, yeah, and I, I believe this. It's, the world is not, there is a cyclicality but it's not mean reversion. It's not mean reversion. Which that's is, right. So, so like you know, if you if you want to do like a parametric curve, like x of t could be cos of t and y of t could be sine t, but z of t could be t. Okay, so it's like it is a circle on like look down on this axis, but it's like rising up. It's like a helix, right? Okay. Yeah. So that is like one model for what the what the world is, and it's a useful thing because otherwise you find people arguing, is it the linear theory of history? Is it the cyclic theory? Why not both? Sometimes, you know, like point of view is worth 100 IQ points is, uh, gosh, I forgot who said that. I think it's like Alan, um, famous computer guy whose uh, name is blanking right now, and I'll remember him after we finish. But um, not not Turing, but it's, um, oh, I'd like to finish. Find the guy. Alan K. That's what it is. Okay. So uh, point of view is worth 100 IQ points, right? And uh, so wh wh why bring up that cycle? Because Centralization, decentralization, recentralization. Centralization in legacy nation states, which have the implicit assumption that those people who are nearby physically share culture. And because they share culture, they agree on law, right? And that assumption has been broken with the internet, where Snapchat right. is on a straight line with the dissolution of the nation state because people are sharing intimate moments with folks 3,000 miles away, but they don't know their next door neighbor. Okay. When that's happening, the geography no longer reflects the ideology. And that's like, uh, you know, something which won't endure forever because it means much of the space around you is actually wasted space. Why? Because you're just silently hustling past, you know, the hallway. You, you walk out of your hall and there's like 50 closed doors if you're in an apartment. You don't know any of those people. You not recognize any of them, but they live, you know, 10 feet from you, right? You can't like knock and, you know, like borrow sugar or like, you know, they can't leave their kid with you or something like that. You know, there's zero network effect, so to speak, from this incredibly high value space that's like right next door, right? Why do I say that that's a very high value? So the closest thing to this, that like a real community that, you know, cosmopolitan-ish people have experienced is college, right? College, you have a community that's actually highly selective, right? Um, you know, it's like, one of the most ruthless at enforcing borders in the world. So the most ruthless Harvard. border control, Harvard. Yeah. Okay, absolutely ruthless. And one of the things, you know, Stanford also like there's this, uh, in the 2000s, there's this case of a girl named Asia Kim, I think. And she actually snuck into Stanford and pretended to be a student. Okay, and she like just slept on the beds or whatever. It's like there's some window that was open and she was like an illegal immigrant to Stanford. Okay, so... Stanford kicked her out or whatever. But the point is, like, for those things that the establishment really cares about, they are totally, I mean, they're not letting anybody in the New York Times company Slack. They're, you're supposed to leak your Slacks. You're not supposed to leak their Slacks, right? It's all Leninist to whom or, or you know, Carl Schmitz, you know, like friend enemy, right? It's basically just, there's, it's, 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 uh, they are particularist even in the guise of universalism, okay? And when you see that and you realize, okay, some sort of selective membrane is responsible for some of the institutions in the world that are thought of as high quality, or at least were high quality. You know, I think Harvard and, and so on, Stanford have all dropped off dramatically over the last few years. A lot of the talent has has left, especially at the prof level and so on. But 
you know, once you realize that that selective membrane is actually really important to building those institutions, I mean, crucial. The whole point is that people apply, people get rejected. They brag about the rejection, the admissions rate, you know, I'm sorry, you know, the rejection. That entire thing is a whole foo that everybody's used to working hard, maybe getting rejected. Like that's accepted. That border control is accepted. Okay. So if you think about like how a college does it, okay, why should only the richest and most powerful groups and I mean, you know, these tax-exempt institutions, Harvard is this multi, 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 multi-billion dollar endowment, right? And, you know, bully for them, I, you know, I think the endowment guys are very talented. I have nothing against the endowment guys. But I do think that other communities should be able to be uh, able to set membership rules just like Harvard does, just like Stanford does, right? If, if the really rich can do it, shouldn't, you know, the average person be able to do it, okay? And um, if you do that, now suddenly you've got people in an environment who share your values. And you can have an open door policy. You can walk down the hall, you know, in college and freshman year, you can walk down the hall and you can say, hey, blah, blah, and people can just go and hang out. Also, what I find really interesting is we can be members of, so right now, it's very difficult to be members of many states. Yes, I'm a British citizen. I've got a um, person of Indian origin and I've got Cayman. Right, but that's quite rare. In the digital world, we can live in 10 different communities all at the same time on very discrete things. Some can be broad, like financial Twitter. Others can be super narrow, like Rottweiler Owners Club. You know, and it's it's very, very different because you can micro-serve community. That's right. And I think we will eventually have, maybe actually quite soon, um, you, most people have like one or a few passports. Actually, most people have just one, okay? Then some have a few. But many people today have hundreds, if not thousands of logins, right? And maybe dozens of cryptocurrencies, right? And I do think the crypto passport will be a huge thing, massive thing, not just the, the concept of the crypto passport, right? NFTs are kind of like that. You can log into a site. With so we're thinking, we're thinking of digital identity on the blockchain, essentially. Yeah, and, and the reason that yeah. has to be there is it's like, it's a bearer instrument, right? It's it's just like it's literally like a key, just like a bar of gold. This is like a key in your possession. Those who don't have that key cannot enter the door. Only those with the key can enter the door. Yes. Yeah, so I mean, we're setting up slowly here what we're talking about, which is the whole network state, and you need a passport, and you've got border control. One of the things I just want to ask you about, because you're one of the few people who will understand it, because everybody looks at me, everybody I speak to in Silicon Valley goes, well, what are you talking about? Like India, mm -hmm. right? Oh, so yeah. India built out a lot of this. It was not. It was centralized. But India stack and their KYC that I can do with a fingerprint. Yes. I can buy anything with a fingerprint. I can have my medical records, my college certificates, all identity. Why the fuck has nobody else realized what they've done? And it's not like all, uh, all oppressive state Chinese version. It's just pretty regular. So let's talk about India for a bit, right? So, you know, first is, um, you know, there's some blog posts or stats and stuff that are maybe useful for your audience to orient. So by I the way, your comment stopped me. In my tracks, which was the future of the English-speaking internet is India. Yes. I mean, we, I kind of knew that, but it really stopped me in my tracks. I was really like... It's not priced yeah, in. This is actually... It's not priced in. People don't understand the diaspora. Yeah, they might be saying we're biased because we have Indian heritage, but it's not. It's just mathematical. It's, just, it's exactly. It's just mathematical. And the thing is, like, the degree of it, like... We're not just talking about those people in India who already speak English. We're talking about all these people who speak, 
you know, Kannada or Telugu or Malayalam and, you know, and now they're getting phones. And so they will learn English really fast, you know, and it'll be like five or 10 years, but now they will just pick it up. Right. And so like the majority probably of the English speaking internet will be non-American. Will The plurality will be Indian. And of course, you're going to have huge Nigerian representation, Filipino, you know, all of these other places. The assumption has been that if you're on the internet speaking English, you're basically likely to be an American. That assumption, America is going to be decentered in that sense, right? Most of the users and stuff will be Indian, like most of the followers. So, you and know, I wonder to- if, Go ahead. just as an adjunct, because you'll 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 enjoy this, is English people have seen the English language being taken by Americans and changed. Yeah. And you'll appreciate English Indian, right? When sure, you read sure, sure. The times yes, of yes, Indian, like this, you know, the, right? It's yeah, it's a, it's hilarious. Yes. It's a whole different, and that's going to be likely a predominant version of English. It's it's in thirty years time. Well, so it's really interesting. Time, you know? So I, I'm not sure exactly how it plays out, and here's why: is um, one of the things that's happened over the last five years, where you know, the your 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 followers are aware of this. That's why you know they're subscribing to Real Vision and so on, but. Um, you know, if you just pay attention and it's hard to actually, it's easier nowadays, but like the, the mainstream press or, or actually, you know, I call them the downstream press. You know why? The mainstream media is downstream of the internet. Things happen on the internet and then they register in the mainstream media. Okay. I'll probably, you know, tweet that or whatever afterwards. Absolutely right? correct. Okay. They are, they are now commentators of what happens in these other social networks. That's exactly right, right? And so they are downstream. They are no longer, like, especially post-2020, 2021, that was like their sort of last hurrah, you know, kind of thing. And I feel like just a switch flipped and we just entered a different era, basically post-2021. It's like substacks, few things that all hit at the same time, right? So if you listen to the downstream media, okay, the... um you will you will only hear about intra-American stuff, the degree to which they've become so inward-looking. They only comment on other countries as hate objects or threats to democracy, et cetera, et cetera. And it's amazing how many threats to democracies are. Tech is a threat. Trump is a threat. Crypto is a threat. Web3 is a threat. Hungary is a threat. India is a threat. China is a threat. Hungary is a threat. Brazil is a threat. Brexit is a threat. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm I'm sure there's more. The Saudi, you know, whatever. Every country in the world that is not like under the thumb and like basically Canada or whatever is a threat to democracy. But those people who like Canada are unbanking or surveilling or deplatforming or you know otherwise defenestrating their citizens. Well, they're doing it's okay because they're doing it to protect democracy, right? And so the the word used in this way is actually being used as uh, to define a party and not a process. Let's take first take the example of China, because I think this is a ridiculously important point. So from an outsider's point of view, communism is whatever the Chinese Communist Party says it is. Guess what? Today, capitalists, they can be in the Communist Party. Oh, guess what? Bo Xi Li, he's like a Maoist, but he's like out. Okay? So it's not what's written down in the words. It is this, it's basically whatever this network, it's literally a subgraph. It's very quantitative. You could literally... Take the 1.4 billion Chinese people. It's an adaptive mythology. It's adaptive. So it's it is, but so unlike unlike let's say Catholicism for you know hundreds of years was a non-adaptive mythology until churches split and stuff like that. If you know China seems and many of these are well, they I have the myth, which is the organizing set of principles. I will say Protestantism was a well. Okay, let me Protestant was more universal than Catholicism, but let me come back to that one in seconds. Right, so. 
if you here's a very quantitative way of thinking about it. If you take the 1.4 billion Chinese people, it's actually 95 million of them roughly who are CCP members. It's actually a much larger group of people. It's not just the government. It's like they're through all of society and so on and so forth, right? It's like a prestigious thing in China to be part of CCP. It's like um it's a little bit like being part of the Democrat Party plus having an Ivy League degree, kind of like that, right? Because only 6% of society is, is CCP, but you're, you're encouraged to be part of it. Okay. Um, so you have this 1.4 billion, then you have the 95 million, and then you kind of go inward, 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 and then you get like the core, like the governors, and then the standing committee, and then you have like Xi at the top, right? Okay. And one way of thinking about it is that is that is literally you can visualize all those nodes in that digital space that we talked about. And communism is whatever that central network, which is, is it has concentric circles, right? There's the most in group and then something outside and something outside. And then there's the CCP members and then there's like all of Chinese society. And then maybe there's a diaspora and then there's the rest of the world outside, right? Communism is whatever they need it to be. Okay. And so what's in yesterday might be out today, you know, uh, and, and you know, some stuff that Hu Xintao said, uh, we're not going to be talking about that anymore. We're going to stress what Comrade Jia said, you know, announce common prosperity doctrine. We're not as much about, you know, like who's harmonious society. Okay. Um, communism is whatever they need it to be. And the thing about it is it's full spectrum. You hear about, for example, the Hong Kong protesters. Uh, but if you think about all the different crackdowns, right? They cracked down on Boji Lee, okay, in 2012-ish. Uh, they cracked down on Hong Kong. They don't like Taiwan. They don't like the U.S. military, of course. Uh, they don't like the Chinese tech billionaires now, like Jack Ma and Pony. Like all the Chinese tech guys are getting a horse head in their bed, you know? Um, many of them are leaving the country as a function of that. Um, they actually even don't like, and this is more visible within China, there's some people who are so traditionalist that they're still mad about Mao. I mean, which is actually a good thing to be mad about, okay? But like, there, there's folks who are like, oh, he was really bad. So that's a deviation from a different angle. That's not like a universalist human rights angle. It's not as visible to us outside. Um, there's a deviation in, obviously, the, the Uyghurs are, you know, getting hit very hard. Uh, you have, um, you know, Falun Gong, yet another. So there's many different kinds of ideological deviation. You know, the the tech libertarians, the human rights people, the, the Uyghurs, so on. But all of them are basically disaligned with that central group, right, CCP. And so it's not really accurate to say, oh, you know, left, right, et cetera. The center is CCP, and then anything that is outside of that is a threat to communism, right? It's a threat to the Chinese people and so on and so forth. Okay. Now, when you think about the American system, okay, there is... Very similar. You take all 300 million Americans and you kind of graph and it's like, then there's like folks who are government employees, like 6 million government employees. And then you go inward and there's like the, the most prominent journalists and academics and professors and bureaucrats and of course elected officials or whatever. But those are in fact, in some ways less powerful than the unelected officials, um, which is a good term, by the way. The unelected officials are the control circuitry outside the US government that controls the US government, you know, in the sense of you know, the press holds them accountable. And if it holds them accountable, it's upstream of them because it can get them fired, but not vice versa, right? Okay. So you have the control circuitry and you have the government itself. And basically, I, I argue that anything this group does is by definition democracy. That's how it's operationally used. For example, you can invade Iraq. Well, it's still a democracy. You can blow up Syria. Still a democracy. You can surveil the entire world against their will with the NSA, basically repealing search and, you know, seizure, the fourth one. Still a democracy, right? You can 
Um, bail out the banks. You can have the, the Fed chair. It's not elected. You can have unelected bureaucrats, civil democracy. You can have 700 military bases throughout the world. You can have John Bolton admitting that they launched coup after coup in different countries, right? You can have all of these declassified documents saying this stuff. And you know, you can even argue, by the way, that some of this, and I would actually agree with this, some of this was necessary to fight off the Soviets during 1945 to 91. I would agree with some of that stuff, at least during the Cold War. I would use Two terms. One is democracy. The other is, which is a very American term, only ever used in America is freedom. Well, I'll come back to the freedom. Everything so that's going to be another network. Under freedom, that's, right? that's, all right, so that's going to be another network in a second. Point is, when you, when you get somebody on the spot, you name all of these things, right? Nothing that this network does, it, it, it defines whatever it does as democracy. And whatever is not it as threat to democracy. Once you understand that, that is a party Right. And it's like, you know, let's say it's mostly Democrat, but there's lots of Republicans there. So there's like from and now Cheney and, you know, like the neocon, like they're all there too. A lot of the statist Republicans and so on. Right. And I, you have to sort of necessarily be political to talk about some of this stuff. So, point is that that group, anything they do is democracy. And now anybody who is building up power outside them is a threat to democracy. So, tech, threat to democracy because it's its own network. Trump and MAGA, threat to democracy. Putin, threat democracy, China, threat democracy, India, threat democracy, all their fascists and authoritarian, um, Saudis, Hungary, France, Brazil, basically anybody that is not either within this social network or like basically their allies. So Canada or Western Europe, anybody who doesn't, um, one way of thinking about it is- it Sounds like the Bitcoin state to me. Well, it's coming. So I'm coming to this point, right? So if do you see the map of who denied Snowden asylum? Okay, so here's a good question. Uh, so there's a bunch of countries that sanctioned Russia over Ukraine, right? Off the top of your yeah. head, like about what percentage of the global population in those countries sanctioned Russia over Ukraine? In those countries of the global population, full stop. So like basically, if you take all the countries that sanctioned Russia and you add up their population, what fraction is that of global population? I would say as a fraction of the world's population, 5%. It's like, last I look, is about 16% is like the, the golden oh, wow. billion. Okay. So it's essentially right. all the Western European countries. I didn't rise that high. Yeah. Right. So, but, but it's like a big chunk of world GDP. Okay. But it's like all the Western European countries and, um, you know, understandably, uh, and Japan and it's Korea, but it's basically the places that the U.S. has military bases. Okay. And one way of thinking about it is, another way of thinking about it, can you name a country that is considered a democracy that was not that does not have a US military base or was not like a British colony at some point. It's pretty hard to do so. I can name one, right? But if you try, you'll yeah, see it. Not, Go ahead. It's not easy. It's yeah. not easy. Germany, oh, yeah, that, that's got a US military base. Japan, US military base. India was a British colony. Israel's a British colony. And Indian Israel are like pulling away in some ways. So they're flawed democracies. They're getting like downweighted. And so you can literally order all of these social networks by their distance to the US establishment social network. And that is the degree to which they're talked up as being examples of democracy, right? Would you use, would you suggest that the rules-based global order system is just the US network extended? Exactly. That's right. The number one rule of the quote rules-based order is that the US makes the rules. That is that is the rule of the rules-based order, right? The U.S. has admin rights, okay? It's a super user. It has root control, okay? 
this is of course exactly the reason that China does not want it. That does not mean China is good. Okay. Um, and just, you know, for me to say that these other groups are at odds with the US establishment does not mean I endorse all of these groups or any of these groups necessarily. I'm just observing, them, observing right? yeah. them. With uh China, their big thing was, and it looks very smart in retrospect, um, it looked really stupid at the time they did it was uh, censoring or, or, or uh, blocking all foreign social media and building their own, right? Blocking all these foreign services. They basically had that sort of instinctive communist or nationalist or whatever you want to call it sentiment that the state, Chinese state should be, should have root, right? That was valued over any short-term economic consideration, despite, you know, Zuck like offered to name his son or his child. I forget, you know, after, you know, like, like Z was getting naming rights on his child to let, you know, let him child. <laughs> didn't work, okay? I was, you know, I was, bold move, right? But point <laughs> is that um, with China, they, their strategy was fork the root, right? Whatever worked in the West, they would copy it and they'd fork the root. This, by the way, is completely different from Japan, yeah. right? Some people said, oh, you know, Japan didn't beat the US, so why would China beat the US? Japan has always been a vassal state for the last 70 years, right? You've got US military bases there, right? I haven't dug into all of this, and there's probably somebody, you know, who, uh, like, as part of Real Vision or your audience, that would know more that could speak Japanese. There's a guy, Michael Hudson, who's a very interesting history of Japan in like the 80s and early 90s, and essentially he argues that the U.S. used its super user powers to sort of like its root control over Japan to like force them to. Um, like set up factories in the U.S. and buy treasuries and so on and so forth. Basically, uh, you know, the U.S. has certain switches at at a at a top level where it's like, okay, we're going to cut off military aid or we're going to do X, Y, and Z, which Japan can't retaliate against. And when we have yeah, because the, that- the game of geopolitics is the game of creating dependencies. Yes. Once you create a set of dependencies, nobody can leave, right? So, like one of the things, like the U.S.'s network that's most powerful is obviously the network of money. Right. So well, now, yeah, we're so now, yeah, we'll come back to yes, yes, yes. global yeah. swap, global I think swap it's very powerful, lines yes. as a weapon. Yes. 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 Uh, but so I agree, money is so, you know, it's kind of, you can produce, you can cut it different ways money, morality, and Marshall, right? So money network, Marshall yeah. network, right? Okay. So the money network, you're totally on point that. The moral network is the network of NGOs and human rights activists and so on and so forth, right? But if you read Easterly and Levine, or various kinds of studies on charity and aid, right? This is a good study on like priceonomics, like Chris Blattner's written this up. One of the most effective, perhaps the most effective aid aid thing in the world was a business plan competition in Nigeria, right? Why? Because, I mean, charity and investment are both structurally similar in the sense of there's a queue of people competing to get some rich guy to give them money, okay? Or rich institution, whatever, right? The difference is that with charity, each person's incentive, let's say there's 100 people, each of those 100 people are incentivized to be the most pathetic, to be the most sympathetic, right? To get to the front of the line by either exaggerating or creating or imagining or talking up their various maladies and so on so they can get that charity. And in extremists, this leads to the scene in Slumdog Millionaire where you know the guy chops off the limbs of that kid so there are more... Uh, attractive beggar, right? It's like learned yeah. helplessness, right? Which happens if, in India. I mean, which uh, that happens terrible things India. like that do happen. Exactly, right? So, so the point is that basically, it's like learned helplessness. It's like be as pathetic as possible because that's the incentive structure that's set up. The most pathetic wins, right? The one who seems to be the quote most deserving of of the of the charity. Conversely, 
with investment, if you have those 100 people and they're competing for venture capital, right? It's a completely different dynamic. They're all competing to be the strongest, fake it till you make it, right? And if you think about like the, uh, you know, there's one kind of instant bio, which stresses that somebody is depressed and bipolar and they're a victim of this and that other group, right? That's the charity, that's a woke bio, right? The tech bio is I have two degrees from MIT and I founded a company at this and it's like the Insta brag, right? So, um, you know, it's it, this is like the uh, the narrative margin of marginalization, and this is the narrative of you know just execution. Okay, and I could probably come up with like a better you know kind of thing, but the woke and tech narratives are the narrative for for winning the charity game and winning the investment game, and they're just totally different if you think about them. It's literally just like self abasement and self actualization, just just totally different. Okay, here's the thing: is in the charity model, those hundred and what I'm talking about by the way is organized charity. As opposed to mm -hmm. like, you know, people talk about institutional religion as opposed to like personal religion, right? Institutionalized charity. I'm not talking about you see your neighbor and they're down in their luck and you help them out. That's good because you have local information on the situation. You know, the neighbor is not malingering. And you probably have an ROI is measurable. Yeah. And even if, even if you don't have an ROI, if that guy is genuinely down in his luck and you know them and you know, they're not a malingerer, they're, they're not like a professional victim and so on. Of course you have, you have local knowledge. You can go and help them, help them out. It's a tough time. You know, oh, lightning hit their house. Of course, you're going to go and get a bucket and throw fire. Okay. Right. That's different. Okay. Institutionalized charity is grants and forms and all that type of stuff, which we're familiar with, the NGO industrial complex that creates dependency. Investment creates independency, okay? Because those 100 guys, you know, even if only one of them gets the investment, the other 99, it's like it's like running a 400 meters around, around the track. Even if you don't win the medal, the other 99, at least they get a workout. They were strengthened through the process. They made one more sale. They closed one more deal. They shipped one more product to try to get this investment. They didn't, you know what? They're stronger as a function of it. They've leveled up. This is a strengthening process, yeah? And so the same money, that same $1,000 or 100,000 or a million dollars that you give out, those these two processes, this one creates dependency and gains status. This one creates independency and gains money, okay? there It's like these dual ways of looking at the world. Now, the thing about this is, the dependency thing, just to really put a point on it, like the only true charity is actually investment. Why? Because let's say there's some person, you know, you, you haven't met them, they're homeless on the street. Okay. Are you going to give them 1% of net worth, 2%, 50? If you gave them, you know, I mean, most people aren't going to give them 1% of net worth. Okay. That's already like a showstopper. I, I can't find, I've never been able to find a single person who says they believe in global equality, et cetera, who'd give 50% of the net worth to some random person. That would be a blow for global equality, but they don't actually want to do it, right? Because charity decelerates. The closer that guy rises to them, the more they feel, uh, you know, hey, I was working here and they weren't, you know, I, I want to give them like some drips to make myself feel good. But I'm not actually going to lift them up. It's very difficult to lift up another human being. They need to have their own independent lift, right? So what they get are pets, right? That's what the NGO industrial complex is or was in India, in Africa, in South America. It's they wanted pets, right? This was like Sally Struthers, if you remember her in like the 80s, treated Indians as pets, okay? Because, oh, they're starving and I'm like the white savior, you know, coming in, petting them, right? The alternative is to treat them as human beings and do a manly handshake or a personly handshake, whatever. And uh, you know, now you're doing a deal with them and you're investing in their business. And now you treat them like a human being where 
you know, obviously, of course, you know, they might make a mistake or something, but you expect them to lift themselves just as you will lift yourself. And both parties work to get that business off the ground. And so investment actually also crucially allows that person to potentially surpass you. Okay. As one very famous example, when Teal invested in Zuckerberg, both got richer as a function of that, but Zuck became much richer than Teal. Teal started out richer than Zuck, invested in him. Zuck became much richer than Teal. That's just a famous example. That same thing happens all the time when you invest in somebody's business and they do really well. You want them to become a zillionaire and then you have a cut of that zillion, okay? And it doesn't have to be, by the way, on the scale of like venture capital. You could invest in somebody's... Um, I don't know, you, get, you give them a loan or you give an equity investment in, in their farm or something like that, and, and, and you can do well in that. All these different kinds of finance, depending, you have to make the economics work, but you can make it work, okay? So the point is, I mean, this is really the, you know, give a man a fish versus teach a man to fish proverb, just kind of explained out a little bit. But once you realize that the entire, like, US NGO network is to foster dependency in the name of charity, you can actually see this more clearly. For example, India was doing something and I remember there's this viral thread on Twitter where like some British people were mad that they were doing it. And they were like, we're going to cut off their aid, right? 50 million a year, like the UK was paying. And Indians laughed for two reasons. First is it showed that charity was actually a hook, right? To keep them as pets. It showed it, the mass kind of dropped, right? You're doing something we don't want you to do. No, we're going to pull the money. Okay. They wanted pets. They didn't want actually independent agents, number one. And number two, $50 million, that's, lol, to keep it, Britain. India doesn't need it. That's like one VC round. That's like a country-to-country -country aid. That's something, that's like the change out of the back pocket for the Indian economy. Now, we don't need it. We stand on our own two feet, right? That's how they become, you know, authoritarian, oh my God, threat to democracy, because they are independent. Once they're a threat to this social network's dominance, they're independent, right? So applying this filter, though, which is kind of interesting... The fundamental thing I'm just, the point I'm making is communism is not about like, you know, seizures of farms or the revolt of the press, whatever the Chinese Communist Party says it is. Democracy is whatever the U.S. establishment says it is, no matter how much surveillance invasions they do. And if the other guy wins an election they don't like and does everything, that's still a threat to democracy, right? Okay. Once we understand this, that it's actually particularism in the name of universalism, right? Communism, democracy, these are nominally universalist ideologies, but they actually serve a particularist tribe, which is, you know, the CCP and the U.S. establishment, respectively. That's like a totally different filter on the world, and it's got a lot of predictive value, because just like I mentioned that graph you can make of the of China and the, and the Chinese establishment, you can literally parse Twitter and make a social graph of the U.S. establishment. And there's like some nodes that are very central and others that are more, you know, marginal and those that are at the border. And then those that have like some linkages in, but really would be their own thing. Okay. And then you start getting now what's happened to the U.S. is it's actually got not one subgraph, but two, right? So this brings us to a key concept of the network state. But hold on, before we get there, I just want to just sum for people because we're talking a lot of stuff. We established why crypto was the parallel financial system was the foundation stone along with the internet we talked about some of the issues of the existing sovereign states is the F fda how the incentive system is actually rigged against the ability for the state to move and in fact ideology which is supposed to be universal are not their particular we we didn't really cover digital id enough we kind of started it and didn't do it but digital id is another huge area so I think digital ID is one because it gives us sovereignty over our own identity. I think that's the that's the essential point. And what that then unlocks is when you put all of these together, you end up with Web3, 
which is a broad term for the ability now to coalesce communities in large numbers with their own system of currency, value exchange, identity, and whether it's mythology, organizing set of principles, or whatever it may be. And that leads us into what seems to be a fourth turning moment, yeah, which is the rise of the network state. Right. So what's interesting Does that make is, sense? Is that roughly yes. the right line of thought? I, I think that's right. Um, I'd say, uh, let me make one more kind of sum up comment on, on the last bit, and then let's go to these things. Um, the concept of something that is particularist, but looks universalist is like a common morph through history. You know, when uh, the Soviet Union was actually the dominant version of communism, Basically, communism was whatever the Soviet Union wanted it to be. And if communism meant that you were allied with the Nazis, which they were in 1939 to invade Poland together under Molotov Ribbentrop, suddenly communism was pro-Nazism, right? For two years, it was pro-Nazism, right? So communism was whatever they wanted it to be. It could be the new economic policy, uh, you know, when Lenin allowed some capitalism, it could be the Red Terror, it's whatever they wanted it to be, right? Christianity under, uh, you know, Catholicism, the Holy Roman Empire, um, I mean, obviously, this is a long period of history, and there's lots of different things that happened, but it was pretty plastic too. You know, over over a thousand years, it went from being the Christianity went from being the slave religion that overthrew the Roman Empire to the master religion that ran, you know, the Catholic Church and the Holy Roman Empire. Right, like basically you had this oxymoronic thing of the Christian king. You know, and so this concept of something that sounds universalist but is particularist is very useful because you can just kind of. Uh, people fool themselves and others with the words, right? But if you look at the actions, it's like in-group, out-group. Okay. And that in-group, out-group, today at least, we can think of it as subgraphs of a social network. This brings us to the concept of the networks and digital identity and the network state, right? This is the true map of the United States. It's a disunited states. Yep. Okay. And there's basically three maps. The first map is of the US in 1861. And what you see is that the two sides in 1861 are physically and ideologically separated to you know both at the same time okay so the union and the confederacy and the thing we take for granted is that the geographical separation and the ideological separation coincide okay yeah but that means is that the victory condition in that civil war was for the north to invade the south and take their capital and then the south surrendered because you know basically their communication structure you know Governance structures all broken and they just give up, right? Okay. Now, if we go forward, you know, 150 something years to the next figure, the 2016 election, 2020 election is very similar. But county by county, it's fractal. The blue and the red, as opposed to blue and the gray, are cheek by jowl in lots of different states. And so there's no physical invasion plan or battle that's possible. Uh, what you have is instead, when you're going to invade a cornfield in Nebraska or San Francisco, it's like, and even then, it'd be 30% Democrat or 30% Republican. You can't actually wage a physical fight, right? But if you go forward one more, you now see that in the digital space, which is what we talked about earlier, right? In that second world that's being created alongside, that blue and the red are actually quite disjoint. That's very clear. That's the polarization that was allowable by the internet of the internet actually allowed the separation of political ideology and lack of centralization, right? It was, it was accelerating even before the internet. Right, but the internet accelerated. That I say, it was it was happening, but the internet accelerated because you know cable news preceded the internet and the repeal of the fairness doctrine. Essentially, the what happened by 1950 was like peak centralization, where it was like this massive centralizing force over many 
decades and centuries, mass media, mass production, telegraph, telephone, railroad, like that level of centralization, we sort of sometimes think of history as beginning in 1945, you know, because the current era did, right? And people, if you ask them for the history of what happened before, they actually get pretty hazy. They're like, uh, kind of Great Depression, Prohibition, then the Civil War, 1776. Okay, and then go back to like Christianity, right? They basically just don't have any, right? Memory of that, right? But yeah. there's some really interesting incidents. For example, in the 1600s, it's a very important one. Um, you know, the Puritans, uh, or the answers are what we now call the Puritans, the Roundheads, lost a battle in, you know, what is today the United Kingdom. And they went out to the Northeast of America and settled there in like the early 1600s. And the mid 1600s, the Roundheads and their allies beat the Cavaliers. And the Cavaliers came out to like the Virginia area in like 1640-ish, if I remember correctly. And so what happened was two different sides on a civil war migrated out to the US, set up colonies, and 200 years later, those same two groups got into another civil war. That gives a completely different lens on like the civil war. People say, oh, it's state rights or it's slavery. No, it's maybe it's roundhead versus cavalier. It's like literally, you know, that's like this insane thing where this, this group, these cultural, these like mind viruses or what have you are just things that are just powerful things that just, we don't understand them fully yet. It's kind of like not fully understanding human biology. We don't fully understand human sociology. You know, we're still at the phlogiston theory there, like the mind viruses that kind of like mass and move large groups of people. Okay. And so these two groups are again, kind of fighting now, right? Um, another 150 something years later. And so, you know, that's why the U.S. is not really a nation state, even though we use that term. Do you know the difference between the nation and the state? Can no. you rattle it off? No. You know, over the last 10 years, we've all learned to rattle off what the properties of a currency are, right? You know, currency has, it's a store of value, it's a medium exchange, and it's a unit of account, right? You've heard that a bunch of times probably, right? And we didn't really have to think about that in the 2000s. Like you couldn't, I couldn't rattle this, that off then. But now, you know, once you thought about what is a currency, you have things that are currency-like, but not quite currencies. That was the big thing of the 2010s. Like what is a currency, right? So hold on, let me, I'm going to guess this nation versus state. So nation, I'm thinking is the physical place where you live that is guided by a certain set of rules. And the state is the set of rules. Close. The nation is the people. And the state is government. Okay. Right, yeah. And the land is yet like a third thing or whatever, which we can come back to. But the so for example, it's a little bit old fashioned when people talk about so one way to think about that nation has the same like root, like as natality. So common birth, right? So common descent. So like the Japanese nation, right? Um, and that's the Japanese people and culture and language and so on and so forth as distinct from the Japanese state, which is this creamy layer of administrators above them, okay? Which could be the Japanese empire. And then 1945, 46, it's like actually the American state above them, right? That the, the state was not the people. The Japanese nation was different than the state. And then eventually got, they got the kind of democratic Japan installed there, right? And, you know, like somebody who lived in East Germany actually like lived under four different states, right? They were under Weimar and then the Nazis and then the East Germans. And if they lived long enough, they got to like German reunification, right? So like one very long life. Um, there's a good book on like my four lives, who, somebody who lived through all four of those eras in Germany. If you lived like about 80 years, you, you managed to make it all the way through, okay? World War and, and communism and so on. 
And so when you understand the difference between the nation and the state, you can actually start like decoding certain amazing things. So for example, the United Nations, uh, so is, is actually best not thought of as the United Nations, it's best thought of as the selected states. Why? Because there's 193 countries in the United Nations, but as the president of Kazakhstan recently acknowledged, if all the stateless nations, if all the Catalonians and Basques and Kurds and Armenians and so on and so forth, if all of them got their own states, he said there'd be 600 or 700 countries in the United Nations. So that's another interesting term, the stateless nation. Oh, okay. That like to sometimes understand what something is, you need to understand what it is not. And ideally something that's just on the boundary. You know, it's like math, right? Um, you, you have a definition and you probe that definition with something that has like four of the properties, but not the fifth, you know? Uh, and then you can often get very interesting objects that are close, but not the same thing. And you only understand something when you understand the decision boundary for what is inside and outside the set. Yeah. And so when you, when you see this, you realize, okay, a nation state, it's supposed to be, and this was the original concept, there's a group of people of common descent, and then they have the right to self-determination, meaning a government over them. That's what it used to be. Now, it actually turns out today, there's actually arguably relatively few countries in the world that satisfy the nation state definition. Japan does, Israel does, or, you know, arguably, uh, but China and India are, are a little different. They're more like civilization states because they're so big. They actually have multiple nationalities under them, right? Indian, India has Gujaratis and Tamilians and Malayal, you know, all these different ethnicities. China is actually 97% Han, so you can argue it's like one ethnic group, but they also do have like 10%, still like 100 million people from various other different ethnic groups. You know, there, there is a feedback effect here because uh, the state can actually homogenize and create a nation. For example, at the time of the French Revolution, Hobsbawm mentions that um, only a small percentage of what we think of as France today spoke French. They spoke other dialects other, of other things at that time. And then the, the revolutionary administration, revolutionary France um, and its descendants basically smoothed all of that out into like the France, uh, the French of the Academy Francais eventually, you know, and that's why they're so prescriptive about it. They just homogenize this whole area. So France is a social construct. So is Italy, Garibaldi united it. So is Germany, Bismarck united it. And so essentially, you know, in the language of like, you know, like, private equity or something, these roll-ups occurred where all these little principalities and city-states were all like rolled up into like these giant empires that we call France and Germany and Italy. And, uh, you know, there's, a, there's fragments, small fragments of the old world that survived to the present day. Do you, do you know what San Marino is? Whole country off the coast of, of uh, in Italy, though. Probably the smallest principality in the world, right? Yeah, something Maybe. like that. Exactly. I'm not sure it's a very small, but it's one of the smallest. It's like 30,000 people or something like that. Okay. And you look at it and you're like, why is this, you know, a quote country I don't understand? And the answer is that like it sheltered Garibaldi when he was like unifying Italy. And so he like spared it and like guaranteed sovereignty. And it managed to kind of just keep that all the way to the present day. So it's like this duckbill platypus, this missing link that tells us what the old world used to look like. Okay. The thing is that there used to be lots and lots of these city states but they didn't have the defense capabilities to stand up against these nation states. So you teamed up in these large units, right? I mean, German nationalism and the whole German question arose in part as a result of all of the, you know, of Napoleon and all the invasions. Like the Germans had to team up or else the French, you know, were going to stomp them. That was actually what, you know, a big part of the 1800s was about, right? And 
the you know in more recent history the indians and the chinese have within living memory basically unified their respective billion people right india as you're probably aware maybe some of your viewers are aware they have both like um they have essentially two independence days right they have um they have republic day and they have uh independence day right and the difference is there's a difference between the independence from the british and the fusion of the 560, I think 562 princely states that made up India at the time of independence from the British into the Indian Union, right? So you're like, wait a second, the princely states, I, I've realized that this is something that people in India know, but that most people outside India don't know even existed. Do you know about the princely states? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I spent a long time in India. Yeah. Okay. Why don't you Why don't you talk about it? Because so, I'll, 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 I'll keep going. Go ahead. The history of India was, in fact, it was what, never one unified country. They were either tribal or or principalities or kingdoms and split and also religious ideologies. Everything was split. And all of the history of India is not India as a nation. It's the history of the ruling factors, who grew, who didn't, the Guptas, all of these people that moved around the state. And the most famous of all, even though they were probably the least significant, were the Rajasthani kings. Because right. that's what we know, because that's where you go on holiday and you go to Udaipur and Jaipur and that kind of stuff. But yeah. That's right. And they were all the Brits kind of gave them fake power. So they said, Well, you are monarchs, like our monarch, and therefore you can meet the king when he comes and this kind of stuff. But they basically took their power away. And then the Indian state took all of their land away as well, essentially, and all of their money and all of their power. Yeah, exactly. It's a complicated process, but they did a bunch of deals with them. And they, they're like, okay, we're doing a deal with all the guys surrounding you. And if you don't join the Indian Union, we're going to roll you up too. Very similar to like the, you know, Plata y Plomo deal that, you know, was offered to lots of the city states in Europe, right? Silver or lead, right? Point is that... Um, that unification of India is something that happened within living memory. If you're 80 something, people are actually around for when, you know, like they were seven or 10 or something like that at the time that they, that that happened, right? So just slipping out of living memory. And so um, China also, you know, uh, I think it's very much a retcon, but like within China, Mao was three parts good and, you know, like a seven parts good and three parts bad. It's about as, um, it's about as negative as they can afford to be with the pretense that the Communist Party was continuous. What actually happened is Deng Xiaoping ran a coup against Mao in, in the 70s and turned the whole thing around and changed it. But he kept the logo, right? He kept the branding in our terminology because you know he wanted to preserve the illusion of continuity since there had been so much chaos and so much revolution and so on in China. They didn't want yet another one. They didn't want to change the flag. He wanted everybody to think it was the same thing. And he just reinterpreted it to be like communism is whatever. You know, Deng says it is. That's kind of the same thing we were talking about earlier. Universalism, you know, particularism in the cause of universalism. Anyway, point is, both those two things were just unified as of recently. And the state has tried to essentially equate itself with the nation and to varying levels of success. I think very high levels of success in actually both of these regions. You know, nationalism is a big thing. These are two cultures that are very much on the rise, right? And this is why, you know, the sovereign individual thesis, which I think is important. It has a lot of qualifiers because I think the future is a centralized East and a decentralized West. You know, the, the Sinic and Dharmic civilizations are on the rise and like the Abrahamic civilizations are broadly in decline. And, you know, these are just like these gigantic cycles. I mean, just, you know, when you learn enough history and you see these arcs, you're like, wow, this is this mega wave that's that I'm just in the middle of when it was kind of going in the opposite direction, you know, and we're we're at this 
this turning of a lot of different things at the same time, right? The rise of India, the rise of China, relative decline of the West, rise of information technology, rise of artificial intelligence. It's like actually kind of insane how many different things are like flipping at the same time. It's like- um, A quick side question yeah. to that is, can the Sinic conglomeration of people actually rise with an aging population? Ah, great question. So- I, you know, so, you know, you're probably talking about like Zihon's type arguments and so on and so forth, right? So, well, yes. I mean, I, I study a lot of demographics and I understand that demographics can be sold by technology. The question is, is will it? Because well, yeah, the so here, Chinese state is so focused on the, on the, the mass of the people as opposed to solving it by technology. I don't know. Well, what yeah. So, so what do I think about that? So um, without getting too deep down another rabbit no, no, hole, a, but it's just something. It's a great that, question. So my, my short answer is. Uh, a robotics over demographics, right? Yeah. Agreed. B, I think the whole thing is actually somewhat overstated because, like, Hold on, just let's just stop that a sec. I don't think most people understand. I took it for granted because I've been thinking about this for a long time. Robotics are demographics. Oh, ro people robotics need to understand. Yeah. So let me explain that. Robotics over demographics. What does that mean? That means like. Well, no, robotics are demographics. Well, they are. As is. As is AI. Yes. These are demographics. Yes. So because you can new, exactly these are new people. It's new people. That's right. And so it's it's both right. So. Robotics over or robotics are demographics are both different ways of expressing the fact that you can do more and more with fewer and fewer, or nowadays in the limit, zero people, right? With AI, right? And yeah. uh, that just gives you a scaling that people just, they, they, you know, they're not thinking about it because you weren't able to just crank up new people like that, right? Um, just, to, just to kind of think about what that curve looks like, 10 years ago, 12 guys, 14 guys did Instagram. I forget the exact number, but it was on that order. And yeah. Kodak had like a thousand X that number of people and went bankrupt. Okay. So lots of people is not necessarily an asset. It's more like a liability. It's mouths to feed. It's, you know, folks who are stuck in old ways of doing things, right? It's just like, you know, America's aircraft carriers are, I mean, we'll see, but like, you know, it's a 1940s technology, you know, literally 1940s technology. I mean, it's being upgraded and whatnot, but, you know, drones and other things can hit it. And unmanned is better than manned. In any situation that you can do unmanned, it's usually better to do unmanned. Unmanned spaceflight, that's how space is doing it. Right? Unmanned warfare is easier to do for militaries that don't have, uh, that aren't like, don't have a culture that's built around um, like a guy in the tank or a guy in the plane, right? What are we putting on screen? We're putting Top Gun on screen. That's the best-selling movie. People are like, yeah, fighter pilots. You know what that's equivalent of? It's like, cheering some horseback movie before the start of World War One. Okay? Like horseback cavalry. No, the point is to be like, you know, if you're, if you're actually fighting to win, the point well, is... Interesting enough, in Top Gun, they even mentioned this. Oh, really? I, it's I like, this is the last hurrah of the fighter pilot. Right. Because the drones, the drones win. Yeah, drones win. Right. I mean, like, but the thing is that basically... Uh, so I haven't watched the movie yet or whatever, you know, and look, it's I, not worth what it's not worth watching, I, but I, you know what the movie's about. Yeah, right? yeah, I'm not, I'm not trying to be a buzzkill or anything like, look, I, I, you know, I appreciate that nostalgia kind of thing as much as anybody else or whatever, but you know, you have to sort of envision the future to be able to build it. And one of the biggest problems actually with a lot of cinema and, and so on, there's, there's a, there's a key stolen base. Do you know what's in common among all these dystopian sci-fi things is they, the stolen bases, they implicitly assume the present was like, okay, good enough, right? 
and some tech guy, you know, whether it's like Miles Dyson from Terminator or it's like, you know, the, the evil scientist is unnamed in Gattaca, but the technology is like there's some tech guy who came in, black mirrored it all up. Okay, and disturbed our Garden of Eden. It's like literally the Christian fall. We had this sort of Edenic present. It was okay. It was fine. And now it's screwed up, right? And so the stolen base is that the present is good. But the alternative kind of stories that I want to tell, and I think the different way of thinking about it is, what if it is the present that is dystopian, right? What if it's a present which has supply chain shortages and rising nationalism and anarchy? And it's also the helical structure you were talking about, yeah. right? It's not mean reversion. We're seeing this. It's a particularly prevalent narrative in the Republicans right now, which is, and the Conservative Party in the UK, which is to go back to the 1950s. Yeah, exactly. That's right. And and you, you want to kind of turn the clock all the way around, right? That's actually the smarter way of doing it is identify the changes that are happening and figure out how to ride the lightning and pull it all the way through, right? And uh, that's difficult to do, by the way. Um, and it may, it's just the kind of thing where it may be somebody who's placed in a certain way can do and see that and others can't, you know, civilizations have a life cycle as well. You know, it's like breathe in, breathe out, right? Like just like that. But what's you know. interesting now to get us back into the network state is once you have a group of people who have kind of a joint vision, it can get there without a single person getting it there. So this is complicated. I think you need both the founder and the community. You need both. I agree. Right? If you but have we can see it with some elements of cryptocurrency, and we've seen it with technology, where it open source technology, where it just kind of happens because the genie's out of the the box and it sets the direction because it exists. Well, it's 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 interesting. It's one of these things where it is true. You know, there's something to the Victor Hugo concept of nothing can stop an idea whose time has come. There is something to that. Okay, but. Uh, you know, one way I reconcile this, you know, is uh, let's call it reconciling the great man theory of history with the impersonal forces theory of history. Okay. Because there's kind of two different ways. So, oh, it's great men. They steer it. No, it's impersonal forces. Anybody could have done it. Right. Um, sort of a good natural experiment for resolving this is like, uh, I'll give two arguments, but like the Newton Leibniz argument. Okay. If there was somebody else who was doing the same thing at roughly the same time, you can argue that. Great man theory is less applicable because the idea was in the air, right? If it's something that basically nobody else was working on, and arguably Satoshi was like that, you know, there wasn't anybody else who was shipped something just like Bitcoin around the same time. It took five years before Vitalik shipped Ethereum. And he was certainly, I mean, like he's, you know, amazing and, and you know, deserves all the credit, but it was inspired by Satoshi's work, right? And would not have happened without Satoshi's work. So it's not like there were lots of other people working on it. So the way of thinking about it is, the way I integrate the impersonal forces of history and the great man theory is the tech tree model from like civilization. Okay. There's all these things that are known. Okay. Let's call that our knowledge base. And that's like the, the base of the tree. And then you can decide to extend it in this direction or this direction, like the branches as a, an individual, you can go to one of these branches and you push the frontier forward on that branch. You see what I'm saying? So that has room yep. for both structural constraints, right? As great as Satoshi was, he wasn't going to invent internal combustion engines and mining and you know aviation and rocketry. He wasn't going to invent all that from scratch, right? He did need to stand on the shoulders of giants, right? Even Newton had to stand on the shoulders of giants, right? There's all of these prerequisites that existed before. That's like the base of the tech tree. But then you can choose to extend it in one direction. And that, I think, is, is sort of like the helical theory, where it, 
acknowledges both points of view as legitimate and gives you an overall framework in which to see it that leads to interesting deductions, which is it means, for example, that you can literally enumerate the tech tree. This is actually one of the things I do as an investor. I literally enumerate the tech tree for an area as much as I can, and I add to it. I'm like, we should see a guy there. And then you hunt, and if you can't hunt, you incubate, right? And this is like a useful way of thinking. It's, it's a little more like uh, Thiel's model of the um, optimistic and determinate future. You know, he has like, you know, pessimistic, optimistic, indeterminate, determinate, like so, uh, and there's two by two, right? This is in a sense optimistic and determinate, but decentralized where it's like, I know there should be a solution in this specific determined area, but I don't know exactly what it is. However, I have narrowed it down. I'm not searching the entire possible set. It's like, there's an identity thing that should look like this. And you write up a spec and you put it out into the world and you're not just the idea guy, you're the idea plus capital guy. And then you see if you can fund it. Okay. So what's my point coming back up? So basically, can these things, you know, these networks you ask, can they exist totally independent of, um, you know, a founder? I think a founder is, the founder's energy is needed to get them started. And then they can like, that, that kind of pulls the Triforce together and then they can sort of decay over time, but it might take a long time for them to decay. They still maintain some of the initial shape that the founder set. But eventually, they don't resemble what they have. Well, founder mythology generally needs to maintain. So the founding fathers is one of the mythology of the United States. They don't exist anymore, and they probably would not fit into the current present state, but it's a mythology that helps organize people. Same with Steve Jobs. He's now a mythology, and it still organizes people around. Mid-2020, the fact that George Washington statues and so on were all pulled down, right? That, and then yet six months later, the capital, you know, so you have something where um, it's a little bit like the Soviet Union, where the Orthodox Church, uh, you know, was dying, you know, the, some of these big churches were like dynamited, blown up, turned into swimming pools, desecrated to show that there was a new Boston town, like a new state. The state was respected, but not the cultural institutions, right? That's very common, right? Almost every civilization does this. Yes, at some point. That's right. But you know, the thing is that when you do that, you're cutting ties with that with a huge part of what your society thinks they had signed on for, right? So that gets to your so your other remark, right? You talked about freedom, right? This is the emerging that that blue and red cluster that we saw there in that graph, right? The emerging second cluster, which is not emerging, but but like a lot of things come together. It is Bitcoin maximalist plus you know, uh, very stridently anti-lockdown and anti-vax plus, you know, don't tread on me plus pro-gun plus this and that. Like a lot of that stuff is coming together into um, in a crypto-anarchist kind of worldview, right? Now, there's aspects of this that at least the words I'm sympathetic to, okay? Just like I'm actually sympathetic to some of the words that you know, the US establishment uses, do I, do I want equal treatment under the law? Of course I want equal treatment under the law, right? Do I, you know, but that is very different than operationalizing it as like legitimizing riots and stuff like that, right? And in the same way with this, with this sort of freedom cluster, you know, do, do I think that there's too much money printing? Of course. Do I think like that, you know, non-pharmaceutical interventions and lockdowns and stuff were basically done in this destructive and hypocritical way? I do. Uh, in fact, actually, you know, I, I think by 
I, I tweeted at the very beginning of, of COVID on the potential severity of COVID, and it did, has killed like something like 7 million people worldwide. So it's not, it's one of these weird things where people want to either say, it's not the Spanish flu, fortunately. We didn't know it was not the Spanish flu at the beginning, but it's also not zero. But people kind of put it in this weird zone where they want to say it's either zero or infinity, and they, they just can't like say, okay, it's like one of the worst diseases we've had, but it's not the Spanish flu because in part we have the vaccines, right? That's where I think, you know, like a reasonable position is, which is, um, which is not- I, yeah, But we can't, we're not allowed reasonable positions. We're not allowed reasonable positions because the problem is public health has- Because we're, we're thrown out of the tribe. Yeah, so so exactly, right? So the thing is, it is all, you, you cannot talk about, I mean, the, the shape, the biology of a virus is simply not something that you can reason to the right answer based on being the opposite of the other team. But if we think about the reversals, just you know, talk about it for a second, right? During 2020, first, uh, it was the China virus, and you know, it was it was uh, anybody who brought attention to it in Silicon Valley and tech, you were called a racist for saying that this could be a big thing, and you know, oh my God, you're so paranoid, you prepper, you loser, et cetera. Like Recode ran all these series of articles, you know, uh, all these journals were were attacking. That was in like January, February, 2020. Okay, then when Trump basically said, oh. Uh, you know, I, I think we should, you know, this is not a big deal. Everybody switched sides. Okay. And suddenly the press was actually extremely, oh, I can't believe you're, you know, you're against COVID testing, blah, blah, blah. And then Trump was like, oh, let's slow the testing down and so on. And then, uh, you know, there was, there's a few months where it was not known how severe the thing was. Okay. Because one hypothesis, by the way, is that, um, and if you look at the graph on Google of like coronavirus deaths, it is an exponential going up into about April 2020. And we're very lucky that it, if you go to like, uh, you know, COVID deaths, you look at global worldwide statistics, it's like an exponential going into April 2020. And then it kind of tops out at about like 6,000, 7,000-ish deaths per day, which is actually quite a lot. We're very lucky. It's just an empirical fact that it topped out there. It could very well have topped out at like 60 or 70,000 deaths per day. And that could be, and again, it's not really the conversation for it, but it could have been a function of ma masks and lockdowns, the hammer and the dance strategy. Yeah, ex yeah but exactly. But it comes with like, a price. So. Yeah. But point, basically, COVID's a complicated topic. Basically, the point is, it's quite possible that it hit guys like Li Wen Liang, who is a healthy 30-year-old in, in China, okay, um, just because they had a bad roll of the dice immunologically. Okay. We don't know all of the immunogenomics of the COVID response yet. Okay. It's people are studying this. But imagine that there's some percentage of the world that has a higher, like you, you have a spectrum of those people who get infected first, and they're also the ones who have the highest severity cases. And so you're, the virus burns through those at the beginning, and then it flattens out. Okay. So I'm saying it kills all the ones that are like the most susceptible in it, right? But where it gets to, it's like, it was very much an empirical question. Anyway, point is, this is something that should have been resolved with a good public health establishment who is rational. But because they said, oh my God, you have to, you know, they put the Green Reaper guy on the beach with the, you know, with the hammer, with the sickle and said, oh, you have to go inside. And then a week later, everybody was rioting. That essentially meant a whole group of people very justifiably lost complete trust in anything the government was saying on this, right? They just thought it was, uh, they, they may not be able to understand virus biology or vaccines or what have you, but they could tell that this government was lying to them on everything else. So they're probably lying to them on this. And how can you argue against that without me going to like GenBank and showing like virus sequences? Like 
I understand this because I've actually studied that science myself, right? And I can understand, yes, the state is actually false on one, two, three, four, and six out of these seven things, but not every single one, right? Because you can actually go in and you're like an investor, you're a researcher, you're a scientist, you can, you can diligence that. You're like, yes, they're generally untrustworthy. I completely understand where you're coming from, but I can partially trust. And this is the problem. Just to move us forwards a bit, we've got this construct that the state is less trusted, right? That's obvious everywhere. It's polarizing society because people don't know where the answer lies. But people don't want and to partially trust. technology is enabling that polarization. Well, that's the thing. People don't want to partially so, trust. They want to just either trust or not trust. And Yeah, exactly. That's, that's so what happens. How does your nation state play into this, and how is it defined, your digital nation state? Yeah, so what happens? Basically, putting all the pieces together, A, people are... Uh, you know, more friendly with folks 3,000 miles away. They're closer in digital space than they are, you know, uh, uh, culturally to those people who are their next door neighbors, okay, increasingly. B, the U.S. is no longer a single nation state. Arguably, it never was, but let's say in 19, post-1950, it had kind of been fused into a nation, you know, the Poles and the Italians and so on. All Everybody was kind of like one, like, country, arguably, is like the most unified it had been, okay? Um but now it's a binational state at a minimum. It's blue versus red. Okay. These are, it's like literally like Sunni versus Shiite or Hutu versus Tutsi because Democrats only marry other Democrats and Republicans only matter the Republicans. People will marry across race, but not across party. And what that means is that in one generation, ideology becomes biology. Yeah. Right. So it becomes ethnic and eventually maybe even racial or whatever if you iterate it out enough. Right. It's like, um, Christians and Muslims, every every race, you know, the, like can be either Christian or Muslim, but there's there's a there's a a boundary there, right? Yeah, I want to bring it together because I've read the book, I've followed your work for a long time, I've had a lot of similar thoughts. So it's a big leap of faith getting people to understand. I mean, because there's a huge amount, you know, and the book lays it out, and your conversations with Tim lay it out, and all of this stuff. It's there's a lot to this, but talk me through what the digital network state is. What is this new network state? How how this idea has come and what it means? Okay, so I have a short definition, which is a network state is a highly aligned online community with a capacity for collective action that crowdfunds territory around the world and eventually gains diplomatic recognition from pre-existing states. There's, yeah, maybe I'm just jumping into the middle here. Sure. Why does it need a physical location? Because we've just well, assessed that... It doesn't need it. I know humans quite like it, so they like get-together. So like the crypto crowd, they love going to an event because they all get together and have physical proximity. Yes, right. So why does it need that? Well, because it's the recentralization part, right? We have these physical jurisdictions, and we have the fact that all our friends are just scattered all over the world. It would be a massive boon to be able to like recentralize them in a physical community where we actually have root. Not San Francisco, where we did not have root, right? We didn't have root because basically, like, there's some, you know, like uh, terrible mayor and political system and so on. We need a from scratch territory where we can recentralize. And then, guess what? The streets are paved with self driving cars. Every street is built from the beginning for self driving, for example, or there's no streets and it's walkable, or it's keto kosher and there's, and it's, there's low carb, right? Like humans are still physical beings and we can do a lot online, an amazing amount, right? The communication, a lot of the culture and stuff like that can be built online. But ultimately, to innovate in the physical world, 
to build like real, you know, you know, um, relationships and so on and so forth, you're going to need a physical community. And so that's a recentralization part. That's why now to be clear, not every one of the societies that I describe needs a physical component, but the nth version of them, the most interesting versions of them do. It's just like not every company needs to like become, you know, multi-billion person scale or go public and so on. Right. But some of the most interesting ones have that level of ambition. Okay. And so what I propose and I, you know, put out in the book is essentially a seven step plan to go from a single person with a laptop to a state in the United Nations. As crazy as that sounds. Yeah. And it doesn't sound crazy to me, but I also think there is a lot of learnings for everybody else in the rump of this, right? We don't need to follow it through to the the full physical state with United Nations, right? Right. Because even at Real Vision, we think of this community and think, okay, now if we thought of ourselves as a digital state, how would we act? How would we make our state attractive? What are the organizing set of principles and rules? There's a lot of stuff that you talk about within how to organize these societies that I think is super interesting as well, because it, it applies to many, many things. That's right. And one big thing that I talk about, I spend like a huge part of the book on it. And one thing also I should say is the book is very much a V1, right? I, on my own personal scale, I'm like, okay, let me get something out there and so on. There's tons of stuff I need to edit and add and, and whatnot. And like the V2, I think hopefully will be much improved. With that said, the a big part of the book is about history. Why is it about history? Because I'm proposing certain configurations of human beings, okay? Why am I proposing that? Where does that theory come from? Well, we have one life, but 100 billion human beings live before us, right? And so if you study enough history, you can get a sense for other configurations of human beings. Like, you know, for example, the ancient Greeks, democracy for them meant sortition. It wasn't election, it was sortition. They randomly just drew lots and one guy was just, you know, or some subgroup of people was randomly selected to be in power. This eliminated the entire campaigning. It meant that everybody in the group, uh, you know, had to be of high enough virtue that they could potentially be a leader. It had a lot of interesting effects, okay? That's a system that might seem crazy to us today, but we can study what that looked like a thousand something years ago for somebody who tried it out, right? They tried a whole human lifetime on it. They could see what happened, right? The point is, History gives us these experiments, 100 billion lives that we can look at. Not every one of them is documented, okay? And, uh, you know, I draw from, you know, the kibbutzim. I draw from the intentional communities of the 1800s U.S., the the so-called communistic societies that Charles Nordhoff wrote about. I draw from the experiences of Singapore's founding, Israel's founding, um, India's nonviolent independence, uh, obviously, you know, lots of things from America. How could one not? From corporate foundings and from corporate shutdowns, from, you know, the unification of Germany, France, Italy, from, you know, early Christianity. There's a lot of different things, different eras where you can be like, okay, that's an interesting subroutine. That's how humans behaved in this particular configuration. It's like positioning charges and then the forces act on them and they move. There's certain dynamics, right? So compacting all that together, here is a process that I propose. A. You know, what's the seven-step process to go from like an individual with a computer to a country in the UN? And you don't have to go all the way. As you said, the rump has some value to it, right? So first, found a startup society, not a startup company. Okay, the difference is it's a community, not a company. The product 
is that someone is joining the community. That's right. The community is the center of everything. Yes. So it's community first. That's not a company. So it's a very important thing. And now it, there's an aspect of it, which is company-like in that you're selling subscriptions. But those subscriptions are to join the community. And so the product is the people. So everything is about selective migration, just like Harvard. As I said, if Harvard is allowed to do it, if the New York Times is allowed to do it, you are allowed to do it. I, I grant you, I bless you with that, okay? Anything they can do, you can do. If they are very selective in their admissions, literally just copy their text word for word. They might yell at you, oh my God, you're being selective and you just quote it back to them and they no longer have any moral legitimacy to tell you that you cannot be selective, okay? Um, and that selectivity is very, very important because it means you can build a culture for your organization. You found the Startup Society and the second step is to, this is a very high bar actually, organize it into a digital group that is capable of collective action. Okay, what do I mean by collective action? So if you have a million people in like a Game of Thrones group, okay, and someone puts a post out there, people are just there for recreation. Maybe one out of a thousand people in that group will like thumbs up that, that post, okay? So you have a very, very low engagement or activation rate. Collective action means that if you have a thousand person group and you ask them to do something, all 1,000 of those people basically do it. Okay, it's more like a company where it's like, or, or like a military, or it's like a serious, uh, you know, like a um, Habitat for Humanity, right? You know, when you show up, you're there to work and actually there to put together a house or something. You're not there to just, you know, lollygag around, right? And um, so capacity for collective action is actually like an insanely high bar. And what it means is, you know, just a first order, okay? If you have a, a Discord and you paste it and you have a thousand people in that Discord and you paste in a link, which is from a community member and they've got an important launch, that if you've got a true network union, which is the structure I described, that should get 1000 likes. It should not really get less than that. Like every single person should be doing it. And if they're not doing it, then they're not part of the community, right? They're not taking it seriously. It's not part of their identity stack. It's not top of their identity stack, right? And, you know, of course that's like the hard ass version. You could imagine it's like 80 or 90%, okay? But you should really aim for 100%. This is something where the, the power comes from the engagement and the collective action and people taking it seriously. Now, the thing about that is that means this small group can punch way above their weight. They feel like a million-person group online because their engagement is so high, okay? Collective action is the difference between heat and work, okay? You know, that, you know like in physics, right? Heat, like all over the place, right? Work is like force along a direction, right? And the um, the thing about that is uh, the, this group that is capable of collective action is, is uh, it is sort of like a subreddit combined with a DAO, but those are the mechanics. You need the purpose. I talk about this a little bit later in the book, The One Commandment. Um, if your startup company has to have a product that is differentiated from the market, like a one-line pitch, you know, it's, uh, it's online file storage, but it actually works. That was Dropbox, right? There's different pitches like this, right? That, that key differentiation. The differentiation of your startup community from society at large, I call it the one commandment, right? What is the thing that society at large thinks is bad that you think is good or vice versa? And that is what you're recruiting people on the basis of, you know? I gave an example of a book like Digital Sabbath, okay? We're offline 12 hours a day, okay? Just boom, all internet connection shuts off, right? Why? So you can be with your spouse. So you can be offline from 9 p.m. to 9 a.m. So you don't check email. So you have time to focus so that your kids don't play video games all night, blah, blah. The community is giving you help with willpower, 
right? That's just like an example of a one commandment, okay? You're not saying, by the way, change all the other laws in society. You're saying change, change one thing at a time. Just like a startup company changes only one thing at a time. Why do I think this works? Again, this pulls from history. These intentional communities that worked had like, a key focus, and they've recruited people on that focus, and they set aside all the other stupid political things because they were like not single-issue voters, they were single-issue movers. They moved to a jurisdiction on this basis, and that meant because it was the top of their identity, conflict got reduced. Everybody there now had something in common. They had all sacrificed and come here to build this ideal society together. So you've moved away from this fragmented society where the commonality is now decreased, and recreated societies where commonality is now the grounding basis. That's exactly right. That's right. And so you need that, you know, I, I say this in the book, it's like a proposition is not a nation, but it can become one, yeah. right? So you're actually taking the proposition nation rhetoric and actually making it real. You're starting with a proposition and the nation is the group of people who opt into that. It does not have to be a nation of common birth. It could be a nation of common values that eventually they'll intermarry and become a nation of common descent. Okay. But it starts as a nation of these people who are just a nation of minds, you know? Okay. So found a start society, organize into a group of capable of collective action. If you can do that and you can have it do a hundred collective actions for a hundred days, you're ahead of the game. That's amazing. If you're doing that, if you're close to that, I want to fund that, DM me, basically whatever it is. And a lot of these can be online only. Just give some more concrete examples. A guild, okay, for graphic designers or for electrical engineers, for data scientists, and you are accepted. The membership is very important. There's got to be common. You're accepted into this guild and there's maybe an apprentice, another structure. And 99% of the time, what are you doing? You're posting in the guild on just you know, data science things, graphic science things, whatever it is, okay? 1% of the time, maybe somebody from the group is under social attack. They're being canceled. And then that is brought to the group leader who assesses the situation and they have some sort of pre-written rules of engagement, okay? They're not, if, if somebody literally went and, you know, committed murder in broad daylight, okay, you know, the community's, you know, it's got something for that. It's like a true crime. But if it's, you know, that they, I don't know, like like they, they're just getting ganged up on for something stupid. You have like a pre-written set of rules. You have rule of law. And by that community's rule of law, the 999 people swarm out of that beehive to go and defend their guy who is being, who's under attack at that crucial moment, right? And now they've got cancellation insurance, right? So again, 99% of the time, this guild serves as just a professional organization that you'd want to join anyway, like like IEEE or something like that, okay? The Institute for Electronics and Electrical Engineers um, or ACM or these professional societies used to exist. They've gotten all hollowed out of meaning. They've now just become money grab email lists, basically. They don't have a real culture. So you could read, you know, I, I'm just I'm saying the truth, right? So, you know, the new IEEE, the new AMA, the new, you know, where the people actually know each other. It's not just some random anonymous email list, okay? So, you rebuild these guilds. This is actually the sort of voluntary society that, um, uh, gosh, the French observer of the U.S. Tocqueville. Yeah. So Alexis Tocqueville observed that one of the things that made America amazing at that time was this. Again, I'm taking a piece of history that worked. Americans just would get together and just do make groups to do things. Okay. They would just boom, like the like droplets coalescing to to do things. Okay. They were the get things done people. And that's because there was no state to stop them from doing that, from making these voluntary. And so online, now we have the tools to that. We got Facebook groups, we got this, we got that. So you can find your culture, boom, join it, build something. Okay. So found a startup society, organize it into a group capable of collective action. Okay. Again, there's a lot of history to draw on for this. You can look at 
the Boy Scouts. You can look at all these 1950s-style organizations, which worked at that time, and then figure out what the updated internet thing is. Or you create something from scratch if you want and figure that out. Okay. Now, this itself, by the way, could be useful. This is a stopping place for many people. These guilds, those guilds alone are useful. Okay. And we have, by the way, versions of this, like, you know, uh, many companies nowadays, like Figma has like a Figma community. And so on. like this stuff kind of exists. It just hasn't been thought of in a first class way as, as the product itself necessarily, right? Okay. Third step, build trust offline and a crypto economy online. So you start holding in-person meetups in the physical world. Okay, because you've got your thousand members and you've got a map of them in the physical world. And once they've, you know, met each other online enough, they start meeting up in person. Okay. And that just, you know, nothing can really substitute for that. That's something which you can, a lot of the online stuff is great. Hang out in person, I don't know, play basketball, do whatever, right? Um, you know, have, have, have a dinner, go and see a movie. You start actually building peer-to-peer clusters, subclusters within these groups, right? And maybe you start having an annual or biannual conference where all the people come and meet up, okay? You don't have to have an agenda. You could have an agenda, okay? But you're starting to actually start knitting these nodes together into something. And it's not just founder. It's not just a one-to-end broadcast. No, it's- it's You're you're building- A proper network. Organic relationships, right? Okay. At the same time, you're building a crypto economy online because you've issued a digital currency, you've issued a digital passport or an NFT of some kind, which like the Board API Club, all the members of this hold that, and that's how they enter the organization. Now, offline, you can do really awesome things. One of the things I um, I talk about in the book is uh, like the use of mixed reality. Okay, so take a look at this visual. Isn't that cool? Yeah, I've seen uh, this is starting to come really fast at us, right? It's got, yeah. The so the concept with, is the AR world. You have an, yeah, you have an NFT. And if you have that NFT and you hold up your phone or eventually your AR glasses, you can see a glowing sigil that no one else can. The yeah. new Freemasons, the new secret societies, right? That symbol glows in the air. And it's actually really awesome. You're starting to bridge like digital login. So an otherwise featureless building you can see something that nobody else can on that building, which is actually pretty cool. Because okay? you're a member of that society. And you're a member of that society. And actually, one of my predictions for like when AR glasses actually happen, AR glasses are, I think, the most predictable invention since the iPhone. What, what are AR glasses? It's basically the combination of Snapchat Spectacles, Oculus Quest, Google Glass, Apple AR Kit. You put all of that and more together into something that is the functionality and form factor of little glasses. And now what happens is... You know, with the iPhone, like the, the screen of a phone, like all the buttons went away and all became programmable, all kinds of signs around the world will actually disappear. Okay. The world goes encrypted. And the reason is if you have featureless buildings, no one is going to go and break the windows. They, they have no, they're not provoked by anything. Okay. It's something where lots and lots of signs will just go blank and it's just a featureless thing and you don't even know what's there. In some sense, it's already But it also exists. can be dystopian, right? So if There's you are aspects. So, so those are a the certain type zones. of person, you will not see a certain type of, you will see a different sign. Let's say I right. keep getting stopped for speeding. My signs are going to be different than your sign. You know, yes. there's all so sorts these of are shit the, can be used here. That's right. That's right. So think of it as there's the low trust fragmented zones where- Basically, people are, you know, you, you have unmarked buildings and so on. And the high trust zones are those where people are, in a sense, unmasked, right? They are with their friends or with people they trust and so on and so forth. This is what I think the medium to long-term dynamic is, is the sort of 
um, zones which are high trust, where all the people of your community which hold your crypto passport are there, and zones that are low trust. Okay, so um, and the scale of those is TBD, right? Um, I think like the U.S. may have actually like kind of weird things happening there, where there's lots and lots of fragmented zones. I think China will be like one gigantic centralized thing. It just retains its centrality. I think India also remains fairly centralized. And I don't know what happens to other pieces of the rest of the world. It might be a crapshoot depending on different places. The first step was found a startup society. Second, organize into a group capable of collective action. Very high bar, right? Third, build trust offline and a crypto economy online. Okay, and so people are trading with each other, right? And one way of doing that, by the way, is like something where the members of the guild are investing time or they're investing capital, okay? So if they're asking for a favor of other people in the guild, then you know you have some history of how many times they did their guild dues, right? They either like the tweet or they, uh, you know, they, they gave feedback on the product or they edited a doc, whatever. They did some like guild task, right? So they put in labor, or they couldn't do that, so they put in capital instead, right? They put in. 100 or 500, whatever the, the the going rate is, and they bought maybe the coin of that community. You see what I'm saying? That coin is not mes- meant necessarily to be a billion-dollar coin and blow the doors off. It's just meant to be like internal tracking for the community. It's not necessarily meant to be a profit center. Maybe it could become one, but at the beginning, it's just like karma and so on for within the community. Okay. So you've built, you're building trust offline and a crypto economy online, so you're building different kinds of links between these people. Okay, and this all takes time. You can't just do it overnight. It's something where everybody has to sort of build up these orientations, right, or relationships. Now, once you have sufficient trust, you've got sufficient physical, you know, community and so on. You start crowdfunding physical nodes. Okay, what that means is the collective action is no longer simply liking something; it is crowdfunding something together to live together. And those physical nodes, by the way, if you have five people in you know, the the Kansas City area and 20 people in the San Diego area, the five people could get like a group house, the 20 people might get like three houses next to each other. Okay. And what do you get when you have 20 people of similar values next to each other? Well, you start getting network effects where, for example, you could drop off your kids, right, with an extra neighbor because you actually know them. Oh my God, right? How about that, right? You you can, you know, just go and knock and hang out. You can do a barbecue, whatever. They're actually your friends that live nearby. Not like, you know, when I say next door, I don't mean like in uh, the the room. There's there's still some degree of house boundaries or whatever, right? But the point is, if everybody's within walking distance and they all know each other, you get network effects within the community. That's why you asked about the physicality. It's actually, you know, if you had all the people on, on Real Vision in one town. It's interesting. We're doing, we're about to do almost all of these things from a... You know, we kind of have a mythology of who and why we exist. We kind of have an organizing set of principles, which we're working on. We're also introducing a system of currency. So we will have a, a tokenized network plus the value transfer internally. We've already got that. We're then doing now, we're moving away from doing centralized events and doing decentralized events. So where the community organizes their own events at scale. So we can have events in 20 different cities all around the world at a fraction of the cost. We're doing, we're doing, that kind of element. And now we're thinking, oh, we've got a bunch of offices in New York City, which nobody uses. So why don't we create a Real Vision community hub where people can go and work from there so they can be around like-minded people, which is the first step 
into creating physicality. Who knows? Maybe we can create a, a WeWork for real vision, which is a place where people can get together and network in a way that hasn't been done before, which where we're not really at the center of it. We're just a service provided to the community. The one thing I would just say about that is, um, you know, I actually, you know, WeWork has gotten hit and people have yelled. I respect Adam Newman for building a product that people actually use, regardless of whether it worked out financially and so on and so forth. It's a product people use, which, as you know, is a very high bar. You need a lot of polish to actually to make it work, right? The one thing with WeWork is they did advertise themselves as a community, but they weren't and really they weren't. a community. They, they yes. got it wrong. They Because they, the issue is community is not about like – you know, coffee in a lounge. And so community is I, I walk in and I can leave my, so my, my laptop on the sofa and I know no one's going to take it. Right. That's what a community, like, so when you're within a company, I mean, that's like one version. It's not the only version, right. But it's like, when you're within a company, you know, no one's going to like steal your laptop or whatever. Right. Like basically why, you know, why would right? that's like a high trust zone. Okay. in your house, you put your thing down, you know, someone's not going to like steal your laptop right when you put it down. Okay. In a friend's house, no one's going to steal it. That's like just one measure. Another measure is you can speak to a colleague and it's okay if somebody overhears. Whereas in a WeWork or, or a co-working space, like the lobby is untrusted space. There's like all these other startups or whatever there. And you have to like, let's go and huddle into a conference room, right? So it does not feel, in fact, it's like something where you're very conscious that it's not a community, right? It's a co-working space. It's like, it's basically like a noisy Starbucks. I mean, it's fine, okay, for what it is, but it is what it is. It's not a community. But, but if that co-working space had been, if they'd segregated is like, here is the floor that does X. Here's crypto startups. And the people knew each other. Yeah, yeah. Then right. you, so the way you've got a chance of creating community. Then if you have a kind of organizing set of rules and maybe some mission or or what you're all trying to that's do. Right. That's right. And, and the way I would quantify this, like literally be quantitative is you have those group of people on that floor, right? What does the social graph of them look like? You know, if there's seven people or 20 people, is it a, is it close to a densely connected subgraph? You know, like a complete graph, for example, is where every node is connected to every other node, okay? So the ideal is that every single one of those 20 people knows the other 19, okay? That's the ideal, right? And they've known them for a long time. That's a true community. The farther you get away from it, the less it is a community. And then eventually you get to 20 random people who none of whom know each other, Okay. And so literally you can quantify that where you can like plot that on screen. You can pull their Twitter or whatever, and you can, you know, maybe they have each other's email or contact information, boom. And it, it's kind of like, you know, Stanford 20, 25 years ago, they used to decide, uh, you know, who lived together like freshman year. Okay. Like dorm mates, they'd, they'd have people coming in from, you know, like, like the UK and, and South America or whatever, and they'd be like, okay. These two people would go get along well. It's kind of like matchmaking or something, right? Community matchmaking, you could help this along with software where the subgraphs of Real Vision that know each other would like be put on the same floors or whatever together, build a community that way, right? And now you, you know, especially at least if there's at a minimum, you need to have like one person that is within one or two people that knows everybody that can introduce each other. Those are your hubs. Okay. So point is, um, Crowdfunding physical nodes would start to complete the graph, right? Completing, like the ideal is a true nation. And I give actually one of the things I do in the book, and I, I'm doing more in the V2, is giving quantitative definitions for things that have been very abstract in the past. I define a nation, and there's many different definitions. People define it on the basis of race or ethnicity or language or proposition. I define a nation as a 
connected subgraph in the social network, right? A densely connected subgraph. Okay, meaning, now what does that mean? What are the edges? The edges could be shared language, they could be shared ideas, they could be shared genetics, they could be you know shared culture, shared X, shared Y. Some social network, some subgraph, this is a densely connected group that really thinks of themselves as a people. Okay, whether it's by language or ancestry or a bunch of overlapping things, as is often the case, they think of themselves as a people. Okay, and this actually, and, and you know, what's good about this is it encompasses lots of other definitions as sort of, um, you can take every definition that the philosophers have proposed and integrate it into this with a different distance metric. You see what I'm saying? And literally quantify it. I could, so what that means is if I had Facebook, if I had access to the backend of Facebook or Twitter, I could write code that would, for certain parameter choices, spit out all the connected subgraphs on there. You see what I'm saying? Like these 3,000 people all know each other, right? These 200, you, you essentially have a whole list of this. Somebody did this actually, and you know, one of the most connected subgraphs is the US establishment. Oh, obviously, yeah. Okay. That's, yeah. So it kind of brings it back to, right? And I'm sure if you went to sign away Bo, like, and did that for the Chinese Communist Party, if they were public enough, that'd be a more densely connected subgraph than the rest of the uh, country, right? D you know, relatively speaking. Okay. So, um, all right. So now, so step one was, how to start up society. Step two, organize into group capable of collective action. This is the network union, which I mentioned, right? You could stop there. You could just be a guild or something. Step three was build trust offline or crypto economy. Step four, crowdfund physical nodes. Now, this gets you physicality. And now you can do new things. You can do the keto kosher thing that I mentioned. You can do the digital Sabbath. And if you have one, two, five, 10, 100 such communities around the world, you now have 100 times four directions to expand. You can go northeast, south, and west in 100 different places. So you're not hemmed in by one stupid San Francisco building code. Oh, you know what? 73 of these places suck at building. The other 27 are great. We're going to expand there. And then people start to, because they know the other people from on. This is what all religions have done, right? I mean, the yes. Catholic, no, well, the Christian well, not all, but many, many, been, many religions have done this. Christianity has yes. been amazingly good at this. Judaism has been pretty good. So you set up a synagogue or a church, you put it into a town, you bring the people together. There's a it's, kind of organizing it, set of principles and that's that right. creates a society. That's right. You know, like Chinatowns are also kind of like this, the Chinese diaspora, right? So diasporic peoples, like, you know, international religions have, have been like this for a long time. So again, the hundred billion lifetimes were picking configurations of humans that have worked, Right. In a sense, so the network state draws on configurations that have worked. Yeah, I mean, because if you look at, again, we'll, we'll, we use the Christian, various elements of Christianity or the Catholic Church, they've lasted 2,000 years. Yeah, they yeah, yeah. They may not be as strong right. as they were, but because they were decentralized plus centralized, they weren't yeah, they, actually- Yeah, the combination of factors, yes. They didn't need a large nation state, but they had a large physical presence spread That's everywhere. Right. In, in fact, in some ways, the Westphalian state- arose in response to the Catholic Church, like, you know, the, yeah. the Reformation and the Protestant versus the, the, the religious wars of the early 1600s, the truce was, okay, there's some Catholic states, some Protestant states, and the transnational church didn't have power within those states, right? This is actually back to the future where we're saying the transnational entities do have power within the states, right? So, okay. So then, um, so we crowdfund physical nodes, and now you can do cool things. There's lots of things you can do in the physical world that you can't do in the digital world. I mentioned keto kosher. I mentioned digital Sabbath. Let me give you another one. Keeping down with the Joneses. So a little catchy names for each of these things, right? What is keeping down with the Joneses? That is, those are 
nodes of a network archipelago that are optimized to minimize costs. Okay, so you know the viewers of Real Vision are mostly focused on you know upside, but if you also go and read subreddits which are interesting, like Lean Fire, right, or like Mr. Money Mustache, or whatever, right? There's folks who are uh, optimizing for minimizing cost, and that's actually also a good thing. And you could productize that. You know what does that mean? So you have a keeping down with the Joneses community where the status is not spending as much as possible; it's spending as little as possible. Okay, yeah. and so the community. In an ethical way, of course. So, you know, the community will, for example, do group buying, right? It will wear simple clothes. It will learn to sew, for example, if that's actually something that's better than getting new clothes. It will, you know, do very careful product reviews and get like the best quality for value type stuff, right? And it will essentially help to control members' costs and give them negotiating leverage in perhaps a time of high inflation or what have you, right? And so that's like a good community that teaches self-control that's valuable to people. It's also like relatively hard to do. And it's something where having a group of 10, a hundred, especially a thousand, 10,000 people in one locale, you start to have group buying power. And also what is interesting about this concept is the fact that your, uh, your nationality is transferable. I yes. can move easily, right? Between Very the nodes. Hard to be a yes. US citizen and leave the United States as everybody's learning. That's right. But in this, you can, you've got your set of your, your currency, everything else. You can leave it all behind. You can move elsewhere. Now, okay. So now, once we've got physicality, we can move towards getting international recognition. Now, whether the United Nations exists or not after this kind of fourth turning is a different issue. But <laughs> there's a there's a relevant, you know, because a lot of the rules based yes. global order system will get overturned or yes. Yes. Rebuilt. Rebuilt yes. in whatever way it ends up being, right? Yep. And this, I think, your concept, I think, is a big part of that fourth turning, which is how we recreate nation states away yes. from the Westphalian model and potentially and the rules-based global order system. The final question I want to ask you. Uh, there's one thing, one thing there. Basically, I just well, want to make this one point. A critical step in between the network archipelago and diplomatic recognition is the on-chain census. Okay. So there's a GIF. There's, or there's an image I have, if you Google the network state in one image, okay? Um, and then there's a GIF if you go to thenetworkstate.com front slash networkstate.gif, okay? If you look at those two things, you'll see both the static and a dynamic version of how the network state builds out. And it's a large network archipelago that has like a million people around the world. It has hundreds of millions of dollars in annual income or billions of dollars in annual income. It has, you know, millions of square meters of real estate around the world. So it's the size of a country. It, it's okay. the same as the church. The yeah. church is recognized essentially as a nation state, right? It has, it's a, it's a transnational state. Yes, that's right. That's right. Or it's, a, it's exactly, is it a, it is a, the Vatican City is interesting because it's less, I mean, it is directive certainly of the Catholic churches around the world. It's less powerful than it used to be, obviously, right? But um, yeah, so exactly. You've got something where the global footprint of this thing is respected because it's got oomph, you know? And most people don't know that about 30% of countries in the UN have less than a million people. About 60% have less than 10 million. So if you build a global group that holds territory, that has more than a million people, that has annual income, and that can tolerate the laughter. And, you know, people will mock it for years and years and years and years, right? People are still like, oh, you know, crypto, blah, blah. You know, it's funny. Crypto is both not useful and threat to democracy. Just like 
Facebook was a fad and a bubble and so on, threat to democracy. It's both at the same time. The only consistency is the negativity, right? Um, and you know that's the same for a lot of these emerging technologies. Point is, people will laugh at these startup societies for a long time, and that's actually part of the point. The more they laugh, it's actually it builds the in-group, you know, kind of strength and solidarity. And eventually, eventually, that million people, if they do it good enough diplomacy, they will eventually get diplomatic recognition from some countries. The reason we can show this is Tuvalu, Colombia, they've done deals for their .tv and .co domains. Uh, Nevada negotiated with Tesla for the Geiger factory. Wyoming negotiated effectively with Ethereum, you know, not, not like Ethereum directly, but the Ethereum network, they integrated with it for the Dow law. Uh, you know, Miami's mayor takes Bitcoin. The El Salvador, you know, government and Central African government have Bitcoin as a national currency. So we've seen these examples of sovereign and tech, you know, like state and network relations, diplomatic relations. And so this just extends that, right? The census is this key part because it proves how big the thing is. The census was actually part of the U.S. Constitution, and it was done every 10 years. We could do it every 10 seconds, frankly, but the problem is getting people to believe the numbers are real, and that's where some of the crypto oracle stuff and so on comes in. So the on-chain sure. census turns out to be a comp big component for getting diplomatic recognition. Okay. The final thing, because I've got four minutes left, is yes. yep. space is going to play a part of this because there is no sovereignty. Yeah. Uh, so and space I think in people the sense are missing of like, this. It like feels like there's a sovereignty war to go on in space. Yes. Now, so not between nation states, but digital states. Yeah. You know, the thing is, what's interesting is I actually did write about this in the book. It's like, you know, there's four possibilities. There's the land, the internet, the sea, and space. And there's like seven something billion people on land, right? There's like four something billion on the internet. There's, uh, depending on how you count, let's say on the order, two million people on ships, um, you know, at any given time, this is like 2019. So it's probably less than that now. Okay. Let's say it's like sub because of cruise ships, all this other stuff, et cetera. But it's like definitely one, 1000. And there's like maybe 10 people who are in space right now. Right. If you include the international space station. Right. So you go from, but it's not the number of people in space. It's the connectivity of everything in space. I, I agree. Down to humanity I, without anybody being able to control it because nobody owns the sovereignty I, over a satellite. I'm super, I'm very pro space and I think it's great. And I think we should be doing it. And I'm glad Elon is doing it. I'm glad there's space startups and so on. Just in terms of the relative maturity of the different tech stacks, the internet text, everything I just described is totally possible with today's technology. You don't need to invent, right? And so folks, and then even like something like C setting, I actually think like- well, That's been tried, right? Peter Thiel and a few others. I don't think it's it. actually, so, so I think that the, it's kind of, C setting is pre-Satoshi. Yeah, agreed. Right. So the Elon of sea setting would basically, I mean, for example, you do it with cruise ships. You would not develop new kinds of things to start with. You just, you just go and crowdfund cruise ships, right? That's actually, you know, so you could imagine actually getting to sea setting from an, and they had one called the world, right? That people could live yeah, on forever. Yeah. Yeah. It was like, it was like, but basically the problem is it was done without the moral thing that I talked about earlier. It didn't have the one. Exactly. There right? was no, there was no community. That's apart right. But if you have, that's right. If you have a 50,000 person um, online community, it can crowdfund a cruise ship 
as one of its nodes, just like it's got a cul-de-sac and it's got, you know, this ranch and so on and so forth. The cruise ship just adds as a node, one of its properties. And, you know, the thing is, there's, there's, you don't have to learn everything about a cruise ship. Cruise ships have an API. You know what that API is? It's money. Like in the sense of you can pay Royal Caribbean or something. They would love it. Probably if you booked out the entire ship for like a year, they'd go for it completely. I mean, they give you a massive scale discount. They don't have to fill every spot. It's like their economics are amazing with that. Then you don't need to learn how to pilot it. And now you've got whatever people that can fill that cruise ship is just one of your nodes moving around the map, right? So I do think you get to um, sea setting actually is like a subroutine of the network archipelago, right? And space is awesome and it's hard and we should work on it and fund it, but it's early, right? It's not yeah. something that, you know, like we're at 10 people, we're at like 1969 or whatever in space. No, but I'm interested in the fact that cloud servers can be in space now. There's stuff like this that actually removes a lot of the geopolitical pressure on one of these network states, because if your servers are in space and everything's served from space, it's all gone. Balaji, this yes. is incredible conversation. We could have gone on for another few hours easily, but A, it's late for you, and uh, B, we'll do it another time. Awesome. This is great. Yeah, really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.